I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that, if it could go back in time, would want to meet Snoopy. I'm Seb Patrick, and joining me to advertise products by Target, Coke, Diesel, Ray-Ban, Apple, Ford, Krispy Kreme, Starbucks, TJ Maxx, Victoria's Secret, McDonald's, Puma, Bloomingdale's, Virgin Megastore, Kodak, Hostess, Motorola, AOL, 7-Eleven, Frizzies, Converse, Hawaiian Tropic, Visa, Revlon, American Express, Evian, Butterfinger, Pringles, Nikon, Red Bull, Verizon, Sony, Adidas, Sega, Ford, Advil, Crest, and Clearasil are... Caroline Cedar. And Joe Cunningham. That's not a complete list, and uh, I did paste it from somewhere else. I didn't. I didn't write that. I just copied it from somewhere else and took out a couple of the ones that don't mean as much to British audiences. Ironically, none of them have marketing budgets anymore post COVID. <laughs> well, yes. Ah, but none of them spent money on marketing in this film. Oh. It, it was not paid for product placement at all. Joe, you're back. We haven't seen you since Joker, which, you know, might have been apt reason for you to never come back on the podcast again, to be honest, if that was the, the level of thing we were we were having to put you through. Uh, how have you been with your, with your massive lockdown beard? <laughs> well, obviously, it doesn't seem like quite as long as that, because I think we did, what, three or four comment did we do three four commentaries yes of course you've been on you've, you've been on the live movie commentaries we did well you didn't i don't think you did all of them we did three we've done three avengerses and a spider-verse yes and i did the three avengerses yes dan dan slot subbed for you for spider-verse <laughs> yeah yeah we just we we just switch in for each other now whenever one of us is not available i i'm writing the next issue of guesses fantastic four is that yes, what he writes now? Fantastic Four. Yeah. Yes. Has he ne- finished that? No, it. I think he's still on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I've got. Um, it's lockdown. I've got a big old lockdown beard. Um, and uh, and yeah, continue to watch movies. But I'm, I'm actually pretty light on superhero movies at the moment and comic book movies. But the, the this was certainly something to tempt me back. <laughs> yes, and we'll we'll get into that because this is one that we've we've looked to do with both of you for quite a long time. Probably like back when you were a regular host, we were probably talking about how one day we'd get around to doing Josie and the Pussycats and how you really wanted to do it and Caroline really wanted to as well. So yes, we are going to discuss um Harry Elfont and Deborah Kaplan's 2001 film, Josie and the Pussycats. It is based on a comic. I mean, actually, I was going to say, it is based on a comic, you know, but actually people know yeah, that more probably that. post-Riverdale than they might have done like 10 years ago. So uh, that was weird as, as well. I mean, we'll get onto it, but but the constant mentions of the word Riverdale yeah. <laughs> were quite were quite jarring. Uh, but before that, we're going to take a bit of a turn with our, with our early episode discussion this time around because only one of us on the podcast in general, has had access to see the Stargirl TV show. And despite all that I've talked about it in the build-up, I have not seen it yet because it's not here in the UK. However, there is somebody who has been watching it and who's been reviewing it on a, on a weekly basis for the AV Club. 
So first off, Caroline, I'd like you to just basically summarise and give your thoughts and let us know how it's been. Um, but I am also interested to know if there is anything about it, anything that has been in the show, anything that obviously comes from the comics mythos of, of Starman or of DC in general that you just don't understand and would like explaining further. But first of all, t- tell us a bit about the show and, and how it Can is. Can I just say, it's like, it's like being back in 2005 and... You know, America gets all the nice, shiny entertainment before we do. What is it being broadcast on over there when it is released? We don't know yet. No, okay. no, nobody's nobody's picked it up yet, and we don't get. Um, is it on DC Universe? Yeah, as so well the way as the... it's here in the US, it's it's releasing on the DC Universe streaming platform, which, to be honest, I still feel like doesn't really exist. Like I know it does exist and has <laughs> multiple shows on it, but it's one of those streaming platforms that. I mean, especially with HBO Max now, where yeah. they're obviously pushing more stuff <laughs> right. towards that. So it's on DC Universe here on Mondays and then the CW picked it up and airs it along with the rest of the Arrowverse on Tuesdays. But yeah, I, I'll i keep just preface, I'll keep this all spoiler free since I know a lot of UK people obviously have not seen it yet, but um, I'm super enjoying this show. It's very, it's sort of like Supergirl meets Buffy, which I know in and of themselves are maybe not the most different shows in the world, but they've really gone all in on this idea of like a very uh, high school based show and also, they very much embraced the, like, cheesy Golden Age comics vibe, which was not a world I knew a ton about. Like, I think, if anything, I knew more about the Golden Age from, like, Watchmen as a parody parody mm. slash satire of it than, you know, from the original characters themselves. But it's a super charming show, and even though it's called Stargirl, it is almost as much a, like, Justice Society versus Injustice Society show. Like, Mm. it really is ensemble-based. And this, like, I have long been a Luke Wilson fan, but this, I think, is, (laughs) as Courtney's stepdad um, and a former superhero sidekick, I think this is one of the best roles he's ever had. He's just so great. And the show strikes a really great balance of this, like, cheesy, enthusiastic teenage vibe but then they also go to some dark places. Like there have been, we're seven episodes and we're about halfway through the first season. And like, there have been some deaths. There have been some surprisingly, not graphically gruesome, but you know, suggestions of violence that are kind of shocking, I think. So yeah, I think it's doing cool things. It took me just a little bit to lock into what it was. I think especially because I was expecting more of a Stargirl centric show. It took Mm. me a a minute to switch into this sort of like broader world building it was doing. But I think that's all starting to pay off as the season's going along. And it really is feeling like a season that was designed as a full season. Like, you know, the Arrowverse shows like Supergirl and The Flash and Arrow, they're very, especially at the beginning, they were all very like villain of the week, episodic. And you get a little bit of that with Stargirl, but it also is really building out a mythos very purposefully. So each week feels like really rewarding because you're sort of learning more about everybody's backstories. So yeah, I would say like enthusiastic recommendation for whenever it becomes available for people in the UK. So before Seb gets into like specific nerdy bits, um, what which of the which of the other superhero shows does it feel more like? Does it feel more? like the dc universe stuff like doom patrol and whatever what was the first titans titans or is it or is it arrowversey or it, it even sounds like it i don't know from what you're saying it feels like it maybe even has like a late season smallville kind of vibe yeah i would say smallville is a great comparison i i have not seen titans or doom patrol i've like seen the marketing and the trailer so i feel like i sort of know the energy and <laughs> and in that realm i think it's much closer to the arrowverse than it is to what I what seems to be the darker tone that Doom Patrol and Titans take. 
Um, so yeah, I think they, like in the US, they really sort of pushed Stargirl as it seems like the most Arrowverse adjacent of the DC mm. Universe shows. And I think it totally makes sense why they decided to do that. So yeah, definitely Smallville is a comparison point. I think Supergirl in the sense that they're both sort of like these sunny, optimistic, blonde, you know, women with Americana themed um, heroism. But I think you have Courtney as a much more, they've really gone with sort of like energetic, but slightly reckless teenager Mm. vibe. So that's where I think the Buffy thing sort of comes in too. So yeah, I would say it definitely fits. Like, it totally makes sense to me why they're broadcasting this alongside the Arrowverse. And I would not be surprised if they end up trying to cross over the shows sort of more directly at some point. I did. It's funny that you mentioned Smallville because one of the concerns I had from the trailers was that the look of it felt quite Smallville-y. And, and I do feel what I saw of it, Smallville bit off more than it could chew in terms of trying to visually represent the DC heroes because it had been a show that was so much not about doing DC Comics characters in all their brightly coloured glory. And then all of a sudden it started to get into having, you know, its own little mini Justice League and then bringing in the the flashback stuff and the and the wider context of the Justice Society. That it just really it, it what I saw of that always felt a bit awkward to me. Um whereas, you know, the Arrowverse again did start out a bit more explicitly when not just doing the brightly coloured, but I think has felt its way towards that much better. Like, you know, the Flash's costume now is pretty far removed from what it was in season one, but it's felt like a natural progression to get there. And it feels, you know, feels comics-y and it feels organic that it's that that's a part of that show and that that's what that, that show and that universe looks and feels like. So you could end up with something like Crisis where you've got Brandon Routh in a Kingdom Come Superman outfit and it, and it doesn't feel out of place. Whereas if he'd turned up in that costume in Smallville, it might have felt a little bit more out of place. So I did worry that it, it looked in the trailer like it's slightly more more had that that I don't want to say cheap but mm-hmm. that smallville not really pulling off the visuals feel to it I think it has a very it's very knowing in its own cheesiness and a, the basically the premise of the mm. show is that this happens right in the opening scene but that the there used to be 10 years ago there the uh justice society I never have a problem writing this but now I'm afraid that I'm <laughs> going to mistakenly say justice league um but the justice society <laughs> in the opening basically they are wiped out by the injustice society And so the main bulk of the show is Courtney discovering Starman's cosmic staff, which I always feel like sounds like an innuendo when I have to (laughs) discuss Courtney holding. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to be fair, I I think they've been very clever calling it the cosmic staff because I've always had trouble with the fact that in the comics it's the cosmic rod. And that is far worse than as far as innuendo goes. So, Um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's always the show has done a good job of not leaning Mm. into that side of things, which I think is wise. But basically the whole show is about Courtney rediscovering or discovering the Justice Society, of which her stepfather, Pat, was a a sidekick of, and then sort of rebuilding a new Justice Society. So because of that setup, there's a lot of the teenagers commenting on how sort of dorky and lame and cheesy the old JSA was. And a lot Mm. of it, basically anytime Courtney learns someone's superhero name or whatever, she's like, ooh, who, like did these names like they're very (laughs) corny so i think that there's a complete corny cheesiness level but because it's so self-aware it gets away with it and i think they Mm. also balance these sort of colorful slightly ridiculous costumes with actually like very good action i think that the show because it's on dc universe has a slightly higher budget for its action and cgi than the arrowverse cw shows do so the action actually looks Mm. like pretty good it obviously is not like full cinematic level but i think that they do some really cool things with it the whole like opening 10 minutes of the premiere 
is basically original justice society versus original injustice society, like full on very long take battle. Mm. And I think looks really cool. So I think, I think the self-awareness and then the commitment to cool action sort of balances out what I think in like production stills can look like pretty cheap mm. costumes and do sometimes look a little bit, I feel like British people would say naff, like they look a little bit naff in their <laughs> yep, designs. Good, good use of that word. But thank yep. you. Um, <laughs> but they're, I think that it all works when it's all sort of melded together. It works pretty well. Is it a shorter season? Is it? Is it 10 episodes? Yeah, I think it's, yeah. I think it's 12. Let me see. I had it pulled up somewhere. Um, but yeah, it's not the full like 22 like you would get. Yeah, yeah 13, which I think is, is good how it's paced well yeah that, that's what i was going to ask about the pacing because it sounds like it's it's got a an arc it's got a story that's going to mm-hmm. tell over the episodes from what you were saying um so did theoretically the netflix marvel shows right and yeah. i i feel like a, a, you know a lot of those and i'm struggling to think of an example where this wasn't the case a lot of those felt like they had enough story for maybe seven or eight mm-hmm. or or 13 if they were going to be half hour shows right um and then and then you'd kind of just spend hours treading water in the middle yeah does this feel like it is more of a a properly paced story that's been fit into the right amount of episodes yeah i think it's a good mix between the serialized too serialized nature of the marvel netflix stuff and then the maybe two episodic stuff of the arrowverse i think it's a nice balance because really like the central drive of the plot is not even like plot or action it's sort of like character introductions like basically at this point each episode has been named after a character either a new justice society member or an old injustice society member that's sort of like getting introduced and it might be that we've sort of Hmm. seen them in the background throughout episodes but it's sort of like okay now here's the episode about this character and here's the episode about this character so i think that that is a smart compromise because it's sort of like you know, there's like, here's this high schooler that's been hanging out in the back, but we don't know quite how they connect to the Injustice Society. And, you know, here's a reveal of how they're connected to it. So I think that it's so far, it's been really well paced. If anything, at the beginning, because I was thinking it was a star, you know, just a star girl show, for the most part, the quickness with which they were introducing new characters, like almost threw me off and was making it feel too rushed. But now I'm realizing, oh, no, the point of this is that it's really the full world of Blue Valley more so than just, you know, one heroine show. So I think now that I'm on its wavelength, I'm like really enjoying how it's paced out. And yeah, cool. It's just like really fun to learn about. And this can tie into because you had asked if I had any questions too, but it's like really fun to learn about this part of comics mythos that I think I and probably a lot of people just are not familiar with. Like, I think that Mm. these characters feel you know, old fashioned. And I really do think that probably Watchmen is a much bigger touchstone for this sort of era than Act, you know, outside of like maybe Flash and Green Lantern, who have both sort of slightly been referenced, but I don't think like Our Man and Doctor Midnight are at the the tip of a lot of people's tongues. So it's cool to sort of see that. No, <laughs> I I don't think I would. I don't think I would have even heard of Starman, right? If it wasn't, yeah, for this no, I don't think I would have either. <laughs> Which is, I mean, it is. You know, the, that Starman series is like uh, one of the most acclaimed, certainly that DC put out in the nineties. But it is uh, by the same token, it's it's got. It's got like little to no penetration outside of comics. It's not one of those ones that's broken out. There is a four-issue miniseries by the same writer of Starman from before that Starman series called The Golden Age that was very much his... It was actually when it was originally published, it was technically an Elseworlds because it was it was basically the story of what happened to the Golden Age heroes um, when McCarthyism happened, effectively. And, you know, not dissimilar to the Watchmen plot of like the Keen Act and the unmasking of the vigilantes and stuff. 
But James Robinson, who wrote that, did then because it did feature the JSA characters. He then did use elements of it, like in his Starman series. He basically sort of retrospectively wrote things that had happened in that Elseworlds miniseries into. And I think the Golden Age again, yeah, absolutely doesn't have that Watchmen esque level of outside of comics, but is a sort of a revered kind of mm-hmm. miniseries. But yeah, I mean, otherwise, you know, apart from character names popping up, you're right. I mean, that that era is. It's set dressing a lot of the time rather than than things where people kind of specifically remember the stories. Yeah. But, um... And here's my question for you, Seb. So the like I said, the premise of the show is really like we're sort of rebuilding a new JSA with teens. Is that mm-hmm. a premise that comes directly from the comics, this idea of like a new generation of teen heroes? Yes, kind of. Not all well, not all teen versions, but the idea of a modern JSA. And actually that does spring almost directly out of Starman, mm-hmm. the, the the 90s Starman series. So the way that sort of the JSA had been kind of in and out of, of kind of comics history over a long period of time, because obviously as you, I'm going to try not to go too long on detail on this, by the way, but obviously the premise of the JSA, you know, originally the JSA, when they were originally published, were published kind of in the 1940s. They were the kind of the wartime era heroes. Then com- superhero comics kind of go away for a bit and then come back in the 50s with a new version of The Flash, a new version of Green Lantern. The, the same Superman and Batman until DC decide that actually they want to bring back the older Flash and Green Lantern, which they do by establishing the whole Earth 2 setup. So they basically say the older characters are on Earth 2, the newer characters are on Earth 1, and that's where they also create an Earth 2 Superman and an Earth 2 Batman who can actually age and sort of get married and have lives. And Earth 2 Batman eventually dies, like, and that, and that kind of thing. And, you know, they're sort of, that was how they had that set up. Then you have Crisis on Infinite Earths, which blends them all together. But they've done a series called Infinity Inc., which I think started in either the late 70s or the early 80s. That was where Sylvester Pemberton became Skyman, for example, having been the Star Spangled Kid in the 40s. And that was basically about the next generation of characters from the JSA. So that was kind of sons and daughters and other related characters who some of whom kind of took on the same names, some of whom took on new names. So that was probably the first time that they had done what you would call a kind of a legacy characters concept in that sense. It was um, very much kind of based around that. But they all weren't literal were they all they weren't teens per se no i think i, th- I think they, they were kind of younger yeah. but they were probably they, they were probably yeah kind of i mean this was around about the time that the new teen titans was getting popular and that was where you know the teen titans had always been the the kid sidekicks mm-hmm. you know they, back in the 60s the teen titans was you know robin wonder girl um and so on aqualad and, and speedy uh, but the new teen titans was when they x-menified the teen titans and basically they were all kind of like college aged mm-hmm. um when new teen titans started in the early 80s and infinity inc was more that age and slightly older so they were the offspring but yeah they weren't kind of teenage you know versions but the idea of actually a new JSA so the, so the JSA themselves had been obviously the timelines had been um everything had been merged in terms of the alternate universes so the DC universe only had one timeline and the idea of the JSA was that they were they had been around in the 1940s and then due to some kind of magical slow aging spell were still able to be like crime fighters in the 70s and the 80s but were obviously getting a bit older getting a bit older then in the mid 80s they did a a story that was supposed to be the last ever jsa story 
where they end up getting shuffled off into a limbo dimension to basically fight the Battle of Ragnarok for all eternity and basically save the universe by by keeping Ragnarok at bay. So that was how they kind of shunted the JSA off the stage. But then in the early 90s, they decided to basically bring them back and, and like they got rescued from that dimension. Then So for a short while in the 90s, you had the old, like, you know, we were around in the 1940s, Justice Society kind of, going on adventures again as the Justice Society, all as kind of old men, but not as old as they should be because their ageing had been slowed down. So then, mid-90s, two things happen kind of pretty much simultaneously and one spins out of the other, which is in a big time-related crossover event called Zero Hour, the JSA basically lose their de-ageing. So all of a sudden, all but Alan Scott, Green Lantern, go back to being the age that they should be chronologically. So they're all too old to be superheroes anymore. So a couple of them die and the rest of them retire. And in one page of this Zero Hour crossover, Ted Knight, the original Starman, who's now an old man, hands over his cosmic rod, as as it was referred to then, to his son David, while his son Jack stands there and goes, God, I'm glad it's you and not me. I don't want to be a superhero. And that spins into the creation of the new Starman series by James Robinson, where Jack is the lead character because, spoilers, David, who is the new Starman, gets killed three pages into the first issue. He gets shot and Jack reluctantly takes over as Starman. And you've got this wonderful 80-issue series about a junk dealer who has no interest in being a superhero, gradually developing an interest in being a superhero, and but doing it in his own unconventional way. It's all that stuff you talked about with with Courtney sort of almost kind of mocking the past is that's kind of Jack's attitude at the start. And again, he sort of he comes to realize that actually he did secretly kind of love and respect what his father did all along and cared about it more than he ever kind of told himself. And that's a whole theme in the series. But it's because of basically the success of Starman at the time that James Robinson and a a then not very well-known writer called Jeff Johns launched a new JSA series where basically what you ended up with was the creation of a new JSA team that included some characters who again were like the descendants of older JSA characters. And I think a couple of the original ones were still kicking around as well because for different reasons, some of them were still able to be heroes. So what you ended up with was there had never really been a situation where, apart from when they were on alternate Earth, the Justice League and the Justice Society were concurrent, really. It was always the JSA were the old ones. But then what you actually had was a new JSA, and it was like it wasn't just the premise of the JSA was no longer they're the old ones because some of them were younger. One of them was Courtney when she becomes Stargirl. You know, Courtney is, a, and even be, even before then, when she's the Star Spangled Kid before she gets Jack's um, cosmic staff, you know, she was a member of that team. So that's where the idea of an actual justice society where the premise isn't they're the old ones comes from but i don't think we've ever had in comics a team that is i mean that you know there probably will be one it probably won't be with the justice society but a team that is entirely made up of the teenaged kind of successors or offspring of adult superheroes we we, you know we've we've definitely had teams we've had versions of the teen titans where they're not always sidekicks. They're sometimes just like younger versions or whatever. But 
Is Runaways the comparison? I was just going to say, the yeah. closest thing I can think of is Runaways. Obviously, with Runaways, they're the children of villains, but that is probably the, the closest comparison that I can think of to, to what it sounds like Stargirl. Yeah. Which is a TV show that exists and that people watch. Yeah. It, yeah, it's like, well, it's on its third season yeah. now, isn't it? Or has it had its third season? Apparently. It's it's <laughs> It exists. Much like Runaways the comic, it has existed for a long time and has a fan base, and I am completely unaware of anything <laughs> that it does. Stargirl is also sort of setting up through lines about a lot of the injustice society having children and it's or too early in the season to know like how they're exactly they're going to handle that. But it definitely feels like a lot mm. of the show is about legacy and sort of like parent child relationships in general. Mm. So you have Pat and Courtney as the sort of central one, but it's a lot about like, okay, what's it like to be raised by supervillains who you don't necessarily know are supervillains, mm. but are maybe some of that. Which, ethos that is, is runaways. Yeah, It's like bleeding <laughs> through. So there's a lot of that that stuff there but but i like that that's that's something that because of its longevity and because of the fact that legacy heroes have been baked in for so long that is something you can do with dc and, and legacy heroes and that and that that premise of you know long-lasting lineages of of heroes is something i've always been interested in with dc it's one of the reasons why i love that starman series so much so you know i'm really pleased to see a tv show that's that's going to look at that and and sounds like it is you know it's not just taking the premise of Stargirl just to go, oh, here's a character with a particular look and a particular costume that we can do a teen superhero series about. They've actually gone, here's a character that comes from a, a comic and a setup that is explicitly about legacy and lineage, mm. and that is the premise of our show. And I really like the sound of that. I'll tell you the two things that I like the sound of from from what you said. Uh, one, <laughs> the idea that it is a mix between, you know, episode, case of the week kind of stuff and that ongoing story, because um, you know, if it again to go back to the Netflix Marvel shows, I think we were all crying out for Daredevil to have a case of the week in court, and it and it just <laughs> yeah. and it just never happened because that wasn't the show it wanted to be. But similarly, like with with those kind of you know twenty four episode seasons like The Flash, yes, there is an ongoing story, but it tends to be like a little bit like X Files used to be. We'll mm-hmm. we'll we'll flip between Monster of the Week and um and mythology. And a lot of the time it feels like, all right, now we're doing a mythology episode and we'll do maybe like five or six of those a season. And in between that, it's all going to be episode of the week with maybe a little nod at the end to, oh, remember that villain? Oh, there's a, oh, someone's left another clue. And so I like the the idea of, you know, a show that's able to balance both of those. Um, And I also like the sound of a show that is a superhero show that is starting off with a lineup of superheroes where that's baked into the entire concept Mm -hmm. because... Mm. My biggest frustration with, again, you know, shows like Arrowverse, but going back to Buffy, is when you have this show with here is this this person with this ability at the centre, and by the time you get to season four or five, like if, you, if you've dropped off for ten episodes, you come back and you go, wait, there's two more people that have superpowers now? <laughs> like, I love The Flash. I don't think they ever needed to give Cisco superpowers. You know, <laughs> like I just don't think... Well, it- to be fair, he is based on a character. He was always going to become Vibe because he was that character caitlin was always going to become killer frost you know but it, <laughs> when you're watching the you know the pilot for that show they they inhabit different yeah. functions yeah. within it completely and then yeah, you, yeah. you kind yeah. of have to go ass backwards to get there the same way that you know like in you know flash to use an example of just the show that i probably watch the most out of all of those because iris is called iris that she's going to end up with barry you know that's just mm. that's just the way that the show will work even if 
you know, someone comes in and has a lot more chemistry on screen with him, right? It's gonna it's gonna go in a certain way. So I like the idea that this sounds like the very concept is baked in. Mm. Here are a, an array of superheroes who've got all their powers, and we don't need to find a way to go. Is there anything we can give Xander to? Yeah. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> and they've left themselves a lot of wiggle room. Like now in the show, halfway through, they've sort of established like who the main JSA the new JSA are now and this is like in the marketing that's all kind of was baked in but they've they've also hinted at like a whole bunch of other heroes who we haven't seen anyone take up their legacy yet but like easily the show could go on and add like dozens of more characters along the way and it would feel very natural because that's sort of in the premise from the beginning i guess kind of supergirl kind of did okay other than ill-advised things like deciding to briefly make jimmy uh the guardian yeah. or whatever uh you know i guess oh, supergirl God, has yeah. been able to go well we exist in the dc universe so whenever we need to we're just going to peel back a bit more here's a bit more of dc universe that has been happily existing all of this time you know she exists in a world with superman they didn't have to mm-hmm. you know reverse engineer their superman in or anything like that so just before we move on from this, so this is one last thing, which is you, you, I mean, I don't think it's a major spoiler, but you, you did, you did uh, tell me that um, there is a mention of Ted Knight having been what sounds like the original creator of the, of the cosmic staff. And I'm therefore very looking forward to the fact that we must at some point get some kind of flashback or reference to Ted as the original red and green star man. I don't, I doubt we'd ever see Jack, but I'd be happy with a Ted Knight, but I will give you one name to potentially look okay. out for if it ever pops up as any kind of even if it's just an easter egg or background reference in the show will payton okay if you ever see the name will payton in the star girl show please let I'll me know and i'll be very excited see, this is good, i think ted knight probably would have like gone over my head except for i had listened to your yeah. episodes where you had said this is the original canon so this is this is good i'll pass on yeah. i'll pass on if it will payton Will, Will Payton is the Starman from the 1980s, and again, I won't go into too much detail because I've done a whole 10-minute video on YouTube about all the different versions, but basically DC have launched a lot of different characters called Starman who have no relation to one another, and Will Payton was a totally new, brand new character, new superhero, new set of powers launched in the late 80s in a very enjoyable kind of, you know, not very many issues, I think 30 or 40 issue series uh, by Roger Stern and, and Tom Lyle. And he, as I say, he just happened to be called Starman. They were just using the name. It was, it was a really fun, it was a nice series about here's a guy trying to be a new superhero in the world of Batman and Superman and everybody. But they did do one issue where the original, where David Knight, the character of David Knight, Ted's son is introduced and is really angry at the idea of there being a new guy called Starman in a completely different costume because he was going to take he was going to take his dad's old costume and be the new Starman and so they they have a Barney and then it's all and David's like yeah I would have been a terrible Starman you get to be so they so they'd referenced that once but other than that Will Payton had no connection whatsoever to the existing Starman mythos but part of the point and part of the brilliance of the James Robinson series is every single character who had ever had the name Starman in DC whether or not they were originally anything to do with Ted Knight, got folded in and it became a mythos and a lineage. And he managed to get appearances of all of them and do something with all of them. And, and Will was a part of that as well. But I just think it'd be a really cute thing for them to throw in a, a little a little reference by putting Will's name in. So I would, I would like to see that. I would not be surprised. It definitely feels like a show where they're really trying to cram in as many Easter eggs and references and nods as they can. So I would not be surprised if that gets in there somewhere. Yeah. But if anybody wants the full story and, and hasn't, you know, isn't fed up of half an hour of discussion that we've just had and hasn't already watched my 10 minute youtube video about 10 versions of starman in 10 minutes then 
then go and watch that on our YouTube channel. Uh, well, thanks very much for that. That's that. That's definitely that has increased my excitement, and I just hope that uh, my assumption would be because Sky in the UK haven't picked it up yet, and they would usually be the first destination for something like that. If it's going to end up on British TV at all, um, it'll be E4. E4 will probably yeah, grab that. it if uh, if Sky don't. So hopefully it will show up on E4. And the fact that it's quite teen-focused suggests to me that it's going to be a very E4 kind of show. So I hope they pick it up because it doesn't look like it's coming on a streaming platform anytime soon. And I think DC Universe is going to close down before it ever gets a UK launch. So, uh, yeah, I don't hold out a lot of hope for that. Yeah, I don't think... Well, I, don't, I wouldn't expect to see it in the UK. <laughs> No. Something else that's quite hard to get hold of in the UK, surprisingly. Mm. Caroline, I don't know how easy this was for you to get, but in the UK, you have to buy it on disc or rent it from Apple. It's not on any other platform. And something else that also features, you know, enthusiastic teen hero stories is the 2001 film Josie and the Pussycats. So should we should we listen to a trailer and then come back and, and talk about some 20 years ago nostalgia? Heck yeah. Wait. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. For every band, there is a moment when they know they have made it. For one band, this is not that moment. Thank you. Thank you, guys. You're a great crowd. Okay, girls, we need the lane now. And your shoes. They were three small town girls with big time dreams. Who's a rock star? I am. Who wanted to share their music with the world. We can't sit around here waiting for it to happen. We are musicians. We should be out there playing music. We do play. Nobody believed in them. You know, you suck. <laughs> but they believed in themselves. We're special. Yeah, special Ed. <laughs> Now, in a world of tough competition, and that is so sad. Fate is giving the Pussycats the chance of a lifetime. We'd love for you to sign with Mega Records. How am I gonna pull this off? I'm a girl from Riverdale. I'm not a rock star. You gotta believe in yourself. Things are finally going their way. But between the mania... Is that Joseph? They're gonna be huge! The managers... We decide everything! What's hot and what's not. Welcome to your party! Who else thinks that Fiona's a freak? And the media... We're gonna be on TRL? Mm-hmm. This may be the toughest gig they've ever played. Have you noticed that everything has sort of become all about Josie? Josie. 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 Josie! 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 
I made you a rock star. Tell me you don't love that. Forget it. You know, I never liked you. No matter what happens, we will always be friends first. Were you going to kill me with the guitar? You messed with the wrong pussycat. My bad. Josie and the Pussycats. Okay, so that was a trailer for the uh, slice of incredibly early 2000s culture that is uh, Josie and the Pussycats from 2001, uh, based on the Archie Comics series, which actually began just as a Josie series in, in 1963 before becoming Josie and the Pussycats a bit later, created by Dan DiCarlo. This is not the first live-action property adaptation to be made of a of an Archie Comics series. Do you, do you know what the first is? Scooby-Doo? No, no idea. Oh, Archie. I just went Hanna-Barbera there. My brain just went somewhere else entirely. <laughs> yeah, Archie. You went Hanna-Barbera. Because, yes, jo- Josie and the Pussycat's very famous for the 70s Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Now, the first live-action adaptation of an Archie property was, of course, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Oh, God, yeah, uh, of course it was. Of course. Yeah, but this, is, but this is only the second. Only the second live-action um, Archie Comics adaptation and still the only movie, still the only live-action movie based on an Archie property. It came out in 2001, uh, April of 2001, had a budget of $39 million and had a box office of $14.9 million. Did not do well. It was a it was a commercial flop and it was I mean I don't think it was critically battered, but I don't I think, think it was, it was particularly well received. Was it bad? Okay, cuz I think at it was least kind of like... at least certain reviews and I actually yeah. kind of want to at some point read some of the Ebert review. Like some of the reviews okay. for this movie are <laughs> very cruel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's definitely had uh, a a reappraisal, I think more recently. It's definitely become a, you know, I mean even Wikipedia says, you know, it's a cult film and it's definitely it absolutely ticks that box. It, it absolutely has uh, an audience and a fan base that absolutely love it. I think there's definitely been more of a, a kind reappraisal of of what it's trying to do, and we'll we'll talk a bit about that because I think I think whether or not those kind of early bad reviews either completely missed what it was trying to do or got what it was trying to do but didn't think that it did it well enough. But I think now there is a sense that actually it's a fun piece of at times quite quite kind of cutting satire of of consumerism and the entertainment industry you know it is incredibly early 2000s but uh, i think behind some of the sort of incredibly cheesy gloss that there is to it there is something there and it's you know it's got a lot of people in it who either at the time were known for doing really good things or have gone on to do really good things so both of you wanted to do this film. So both of you already had a, a good relationship with this film. It's a film that you liked and wanted to do. Um, Caroline, sort of, what, what what does this film mean to you, and how long have you been a fan of it? Have you been there since the start? Were you cheerleading for it back in two thousand and one? Yes, absolutely. I was. I don't think I saw it in theaters. I was trying to remember. I'm pretty sure it's one we discovered like on home rental, but like pretty soon after its release. I so I have loved like I loved this movie. I rewatching it, I was like, oh, I remember every single line from this movie. I must have watched it like a hundred times in my childhood. We had the soundtrack, like that was one of our family's like most played soundtracks. soundtracks. It's so great. Um, so yeah, both me and then my family, like we all just loved this movie. I feel like my parents enjoyed it as much as I did. So this was like hugely formative. It would have been I would have been like eleven when it came out, probably like fifth grade, and it just. 
I think even at that age, like I completely, the satire was not lost on me. You know, it's not like particularly subtle satire, which again makes me wonder about critics that sort of didn't either didn't pick up on it or dismissed it. Mm. I feel like as an 11 year old girl, I totally got <laughs> that this movie was both trying to be an absurdist satire and like an earnest girl power movie. And I think that was a combo that threw off a lot of people. But me, who was potentially like sort of the target audience for this film, it like played beautifully for me. And I feel like there's a whole like generation of women that are like my age who have a similar relationship to this movie. I was even I just posted on my Instagram something when I was watching it last night and I had like multiple friends reach out and be like, oh, I love that movie, too. I watch it all the time. So I think I almost wonder if the you know, the box office was low, but maybe a lot of people like me sort of discovered it on VHS or DVD or whatever we had at that transitional point and sort of like came to love it throughout their childhood. And that's part of why it's so um, reappraised today. I also feel like 2001 is kind of a, a bit of a nexus of a very bro-y time in pop culture uh-huh. in in terms of the way that pop culture was discussed and in terms of the type of pop culture that was being made. And particularly within this subgenre, the, the kind of the, you know, American teen comedy a lot of the bigger hits were the American Pies, the Road mm-hmm. Trips, um, those those kind of movies. And I, I think there is, I think there's a raft of movies from around this time that have undergone this critical appraisal in you know in the in the subsequent twenty years. With you know people like Caroline, that audience who connected with it at the time, have gone. Wait, hang on, did did people not like this movie and have talked about mm-hmm. it? And then other people have gone back to it and have it. Well, I mean, I didn't. I I just didn't even wasn't even aware of it at the time. In fact, I I remember being a little bit confused about which movie was which out of Josie and the Pussycats and Coyote Ugly. Mm, yeah, I could see that. <laughs> Not that the movies but have the anything... marketing. Yeah, the marketing and kind of the, you know, what they Those weird, like. like, bandana shirts that don't have a back. I feel like they were heavily featured in both of those films. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I just wasn't aware of it. And I think it probably arrived slightly too early for it to be a movie that I discovered myself because, it, like, I watched... The movies I watched were all kind of picked by my parents when I when I was still 11, 12. And it was probably about 2002, 3 that I started, you know, being able to select movies for myself. And, you know, I was drawn to the the guy teen movies, the American Pies and those kind of things. And do you know what? I, I even think within the more female focused teen comedies of that time, and I'm thinking, you know, once you get post uh, enough distance from Clueless, uh, which obviously this has a one of the one of the cast members in common. <laughs> um, yeah, and once once you get once you get enough of a distance from that, and you get your she's all that's and ten things I hate about you, and and the more the more female focused American teen comedies, even those I think had kind of like more of an eye on the male audience than the male ones did on a female audience. The male ones were were for the boys. And I do actually, I think I'd like to get to this at some point in the discussion here of Josie and the Pussycats. I do feel like this movie has a bit of a male gaze to it in in spite of all of the girl power. There's definitely something within it, I think, that are like, could this character not be wearing a bra in this scene? So <laughs> maybe the 13-year-old boys will watch as well. I think the two, the early 2000s just had a male gaze to every aspect mm. of pop yeah. culture. Like you look back on this era and you're just like, whoa, what were we all doing at this time? <laughs> mm-hmm. And in Britain, it was lads mag, so I'm not sure about the US, mm. but you know, 
Yeah. Wait, when, Joe, when did you, do you remember when you first saw this movie? Yeah, so I definitely, I, I if I had to guess, I think it was either just before or just after we started doing the podcast, so probably, you know, five plus years ago. And I was definitely approaching it from a, oh, here's this movie that I've kind of heard people talking about a little bit or have heard mention of, and it and it's, you know, it seems light and frothy and like I could kind of put it on and... Uh, and yeah, and if it's crap, never think about it again. And if it's good, great. And um, I remember watching it and going, "Oh yeah, no, people aren't wrong. I, like, I think this is <laughs> this is a minor masterpiece." And it like it taps into you know. So Caroline, we're of the same generation of the the pop culture we were experiencing, and it pushes a lot of those buttons of things that I was into when I was twelve, thirteen years old. Like I love pop punk music. Just about every actor in this I know from something else <laughs> that I enjoyed at that time. And yeah, and I and I think it, it is incredibly on the nose with its satire. It's not subtle. But also I think it does it packs it up. It, I like I think this might be the reason it doesn't land right. It kind of has its cake and eats it, or it seems to have its cake and eats mm. it with everything. But in a very knowing way. And for me, you can kind of you can kind of sum up the entire success of this movie with the opening track, which is Dujour's "Backdoor Lover," um, <laughs> which um, I've got the lyrics primed. I don't know if you want me to if you want me to take the audience through them uh, because I'm I'm aware some of our audience might not have seen the film as well. Let, actually, do you know I, I wasn't going to, but yes, I'm. I'm I'm happy I'm happy for Joe to read out those lyrics because just because I just want to see what happens yeah. when Joe reads out those. Lyrics. And, and Dujour is like the complete like Backstreet Boys yeah. Yeah. boy band made up of some of our best 2000s era actors like Donald Faison and Seth Green. On on that note, just very very quickly, is it not really weird that that band is made up of three actors who are who are kind of better known than almost everyone else in the film in the sense of they're like your kind of headline they're mm-hmm. playing the boy band because they're Seth Green at the height of his Seth Greenness mm-hmm. Brecken Mayer who's a few years after Clueless but is still Brecken Mayer Donald Faison who I don't know if Scrubs had started at that point but obviously had been in Clueless it was just pre-Scrubs so you know but he's on his way upwards and then you've got a guy called Alexander Martin who doesn't seem to have made a film like pretty much since he's been in about three films it's really weird that there's like these three really recognizable guys and then this other guy who looks a bit like a lot of people he looks like about three <laughs> different actors melded into one but he's not famous well he <laughs> i looked at his imdb when i was watching because i was thinking the same thing he also he also almost looks like a young peterberg that's where I, that's where i was going um, mm. I was like, that can't be Peterberg, and it, it obviously isn't. Um, <laughs> but he, he also has the look of that, you know, like the slightly odd, less attractive looking guy in any yeah. one of those 90s. Yeah. And, and, and I yeah. think we had that on both sides of the Atlantic with your boy zones and Westlife. So there was always one that you were like, oh, a bit a bit strange and yeah. Backstreet Boys. Or just the one you sort of thing. forget about. I feel like it's yeah. a meta commentary. Like there's the ones that really pop and you're like, and then I think there's some other members of One Direction that I can't name, but like they're in there somewhere <laughs> too. Like it might've just been a practical thing if they needed a guy. Cause he kind of comes back at the end and does more stuff. Whereas the yeah. other guys are more cameo. So I don't know yeah. if, if it was a logistical thing, but I think it works as like a meta commentary on, like you were saying, Joe, like the sort of weird leftover one in a boy band. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so Dijon are the biggest boy band in the world. They are your backstreet boys, your NSYNC. And the movie opens with them landing an airport with loads of screaming fans. They land at the airport and immediately start performing to, their adoring fans 
and they start singing a song like back, called Backdoor Lover. And I think it is entirely possible if you are not paying full attention at the start of the film to go, the boy band is singing a cheesy pop song. Cheesy but catchy. The music in oh, the yeah. movie, even when it's bad, like mm. bad, quote unquote bad, is so catchy. It's real catchy, and you know they're all playing up to their their boy band silliness. And then I'm sure this is what happened to me the first time I watched the film. I kind of caught one line and went, "Huh, <laughs> this is pretty much what Joe did." Yeah, <laughs> huh? okay. And then you get and then you get to the chorus, and I won't read out the lyrics to the whole song. It's it's long, but I encourage A, you look them up, and B, you listen to the track because it's amazing. But these are the lyrics to Dujour's Backdoor Lover. This kind of love is wrong, but you know it feels so right. Running my hands across your cheeks, they're oh so smooth and white. So leave the light on, baby, and unlock your back door. I'll be coming through that way tonight to love you for sure. Lying on your bed, staring up at the moon, you got me crazy, but I'll love you soon. I'm your backdoor lover, coming from behind. With the lights down low, back down lover, just you and me. No one has to know. Backdoor lover, let me meet you at your secret spot. I'll show you that. I'll show you a love that's more than hot. Uh, and we have lots of following verses that, that kind of follow along on along the same theme. And do you know what? It kind of made me think as well of, um, I, I think people forget this, like the, the early Jonas Brothers and their promise mm-hmm. ring stuff. And the way that all of these, all of those boy bands are kind of not sexual, right? Because they are, a lot of them trying to sell records to a preteen audience. Yeah, they're non-threatening. Yeah, non-sexual, non-threatening, but that there is this inherent obvious sexuality there. You, you're not screaming at an airport unless there is some sexuality there. And... That reached its natural conclusion with the Jonas Brothers going, hey, look, we don't have sex, so think about the fact that we're not having sex and how much you want to have sex with us, right? <laughs> um, and with, with the Dujour Backdoor Lover, it's that, I just think it's, it's kind of genius that it catches you off guard. It's obvious enough that you will get it by the end of that song, but it is, it's kind of the perfect setup for the movie of, you are going to spot exactly what we are trying to do, but also, every so often you'll kind of forget, and then you'll spot an Evian logo at the back of the fish tank at the aquarium and remember. <laughs> and I, I, I love that. That's I love that. That's what the film kind of just beds into the background of everything. And actually, I think from a kind of basic storytelling perspective, in terms of hitting the points of the three acts, it's kind of surprisingly robust. It, it, it has mm-hmm. it doesn't take unnecessary detours and that's helped by the fact that the posse cats sit in one room for 80 percent of the running time of the movie <laughs> um but like it I, I think it's a really straightforwardly told movie that that hooks onto that idea lands the idea and has a lot of fun in between and and yeah backdoor lover is the is the kind of encapsulation of that for me i think as someone who's obviously not come to it with the you know the certainly perspective of Was this a, your of first Caroline, time having... seeing it seb this this was my first time watching it, yeah. So I had, but I had I, I went in expecting that it was going to be a fun and clever satire because that's how I've seen it talked about, and I've you know heard references to scenes and that kind of thing. And um, I think uh, what where it probably does fall down for me is whenever it's being sincere, and I can mm. see that watching it as the target audience, I think the fact that it blends the bits where it's trying to be sincere with the clever satire stuff is a great package and I can see why and where that works but 
watching it as 37-year-old bloke kind of 20 years after it's made, you know, uh, there are bits of it that kind of make me roll my eyes because I'm kind of more waiting for the for the jokes to come along. Mm-hmm. And I think it's as well, because of some of the people who it's got in it, some of whom like, you know, someone like Rosario Dawson, who, you know, I would know better now for being in comedy and, and, and you know, for kind of being a, a good comic actor. Well, being amazing at everything fact, is what we know Rosario Dawson for Well, now. yeah, exactly. Obviously, the fact that it's got not only has it got Parker Posey and Alan Cumming, but Parker Posey is obviously the one who's got on the phone to bring in Eugene Levy. So you've got a single scene cameo from Eugene Levy playing himself. Because it's got those people in it, and because it's got celebrities playing themselves as well. I well, I say celebrities. It's got Carson Daly playing himself. Who at the um, who at the time? Who at the time was yeah yeah you know. I know I'm not saying he's not a celebrity. I'm just saying singular rather than plural. You know, it's. I would go into this kind of probably getting more out of it if it was just the satire comedy mm-hmm. all the way through, and if it kind of had that arch tone all the way through. But I'd pro- I, I can see that it probably wouldn't be as kind of beloved by the original target audience if it was that. It would probably be more loved by people like me if it was that all the way through. But I do think as well, I think what's really interesting is, is that that point about time and kind of when it came out, because it's a there's two sides to it really, which is that on the one hand, and this is one of the things that I tweeted about, is that like it's you know, aesthetically, I cannot think of a more early two thousands aesthetic singular object as this film. Everything that it does, every aesthetic decision, the music, the look of it, the fact that it's Carson Daly in there, even the fact that it's Rachel Lee Cook, because, you know, where's Rachel Lee Cook been since about 2004? You know, it's just everything about it is of that time. There is so much frosted hair. It's just, you know, and even the fact that it's doing at the start at the airport with the plane, they're doing that Backstreet Boys video. And it's like, even if you don't know that as the Backstreet Boys video, you know it as the Blink-182 parody of the Backstreet Boys video. It's like, that is such an image. And it's just, so the whole thing is just, you know, I, I actually really enjoyed spending an hour and a half living in a simpler time 20 years ago uh, that that side of it i liked but i do i do think you're right joe that actually this kind if you aside from the surface trappings which if you did it now would be a nost- you could actually you could still do this film and, and just set it then and have it be a nostalgia thing but the the style of film and what it is and what it's doing doesn't sit as well in 2001 i could a hundred percent imagine this film being made now possibly not as a teen film and possibly aimed at a slightly older audience but i was just looking at this and this was why again i i tweeted that tweet about how you look at alan cumming and parker posey and if you made that film now that would be david tennant and elizabeth banks like that is they're both those performances that is a david tennant performance and an elizabeth banks performance i could completely imagine this as a paul feig movie that's got Kristen wig and um and, and elizabeth banks in it and somebody replied to me on on twitter i think it was Derek knight replied to me on twitter and said that Haley steinfeld would be josie if you made it now and i was like yeah okay we'll have that uh but the point is it's like i what it's doing and the style of the humor and everything about it I could totally imagine being made. Now, it sits so much better within the last five to ten years than it did in 2001. And that also makes me sad for the fact that, again, what I said about like likening Parker Posey to Elizabeth Banks, Parker Posey's career happened at the wrong time for her to be what she should have been. Because she, I mean, I, I love Elizabeth Banks, but Parker Posey should be Elizabeth Banks. She should be 
getting a lot of those high-profile comedy roles because she's absolutely brilliant, but... She is amazing in this. I think yeah, she's, yeah. The, she's so the best good. performance in the movie. She is just perfectly pitched. I mean, I, I I came to this having literally like less than a week ago. We we watched. We I just I fancy. I think it was after Fred Willard died. I just I fancied watching a Christopher Guest, and I couldn't find the disc of um, Mighty Wind for some reason. So we watched Best in Show, which I actually think is probably her. Well, maybe Guffman, but I think Best in Show is is her best of the Christopher Guest ones. So so already I was coming into it going, well, Parker Posey is going to be one of my favourite things about this because she's brilliant, and I've just watched Best in Show, in which she's brilliant. I also like, actually, because we just watched Best in Show, he, I don't think he gets a line, but when she's explaining her plan to the various international delegates, the Japanese delegate is an actor, and I can't remember his name, but he is in Best in Show. He is the pet mm. shop guy when she's trying oh, to buy yeah, yeah. the replacement dog the toy. <laughs> yeah, the bee. <laughs> But yeah, so I mean, yeah, I, I would, I would absolutely agree that she is. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people doing good work in this. I think it's possibly the best thing I've ever seen Tara Reid do. Yeah, but she's great. I, 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 yeah, Park Posey is absolutely the hero of this film. <laughs> I think this is Tara Reid's best performance. I think Rosario Dawson probably gets underserved a little bit. I think Rosario Dawson's kind of. Yeah, I think she's autopiling it because she's better than the material she gets, and it's like she will go on and do a lot better things after this. I think it's interesting to look at to look at that central uh, trio and where they were in their careers because mm. Rachel Lee Cook is coming off she's all that uh, in yeah 90, this was in like 99. the height this yeah was like this the is... height and then the last thing she did before she just like went away and now mm. sometimes does Hallmark movies but I yeah. feel like this was like the pinnacle and then also like the plummet of her career. Mm. Um, it's it's her in in a way it's her Howard the Duck. She's <laughs> the, sure. the, the, the the girl band stuff had me thinking Howard the Duck. It definitely <laughs> uh, I was thinking, oh, I'd love it. I'd love a cheeky pop punk cover of Hunger City coming up right here. Um, but she yeah, I, I, I think she is. I think she's kind of great casting for this, actually, because and she plays Josie. I don't know if you were yeah. thinking people hadn't seen this. Movie. Sorry, yes. I don't know how we much should... explanation we want to give. For... No, we should we should we should do the explanations we're going on. So Rachel, Rachel Lee Cook is your kind of I mean she's just the definition of early 2000s cute and I think the kind of like the girl that the kind of nerdy guy like me would be like, oh I I as a 13 year old I fancy Rachel Lee Cook. She's the mm-hmm. one that I, I like in this movie. I, and I think she's got a real great like best friend vibe. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? I love Rachel Lee Cook. Like yeah. she is just one of those actors. I like. I want her to come back. I love. She was just in a lot of movies that hit me in this era that were like right in my sweet spot of things I love. I think she's great in all of them. I think she's great in this film. She's got a great I want voice. More her voice yeah. kind of doesn't yeah. entirely fit what she looks like, and I, and I think that that kind of adds to that really. She's just got a really friendly, approachable vibe. And yeah. the, the, what Josie needs to be in this movie is this kind of sweet, naive, innocent who just wants to do the right thing and play music with her friends and not overthink anything beyond that, but also have enough about her that she can kind of save the day come the end and figure out what's really going on. So yeah, I, I think she's great. And then as I say, I think it's Tara Reed's best performance. Tara mm-hmm. Reed plays the ditzy drummer of the band who is like i think tara reed is is when i was talking about the male gaziness of this movie mm-hmm. i think especially coming off of american pie which you know was her big hit in 99 um it feels like conscious casting i think this is probably her 
as far as movies that I've seen, her last good performance. Yeah. She gets another big teen movie in Van Wilder the year after this, but I think she's pretty wretched in that film. <laughs> but yeah, I think she's great here and she kind of preempts what Amanda Seyfried does in Mean Girls. It has that... Di- yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, yeah. But in a different... I think that... I Well, I think in the end, like, Josie is... And the Pussycats is such a nice movie. So it's like the care, you know, the setup for Melody is like she is the sort of ridiculously ditzy airhead to the point where you're like, I don't know how she functions, but the movie loves her so much and all her friends love her so much and they're just yeah. very accepting. And I like, there's just such a niceness to it. And I really like that aspect. And I agree, Tara Reed is so funny. There's just like a little physical comedy bit where, so the setup of the movie is that there's this evil record company that we'll just sort of sub in these pop groups in order to put subliminal messages in their music. And so in the opening, they end up killing off DuJour because they get too suspicious. So they have to recruit the Pussycats next. But they're the the Pussycats are like watching the news that DuJour has gone missing. And they all sort of like back up in shock to sit down. But there's not a chair behind Tara Reid. So she just falls <laughs> over. And it's such <laughs> a, a funny physical comedy. But like I rewound yeah. it to watch it several times because it's just like... She just nails the timing of it, and I don't know. She's really good at... She doesn't judge the character, and then none of the other characters judge Melody either, and it's, like, very charming, I think. That scene also has one of my favourite jokes in the movie, where the news report is... It's like an MTV News-style report of, DeJour's plane uh, plane has gone missing. We, We don't know what's happened with the band yet. Their record company haven't yet released a statement, but they have released a limited edition box set of all of the band's work that will be released tomorrow. And it's just it's it's delivered yeah. so deadpan. And I, and I think yeah. there are I think there are gags like that in the movie that are just kind of like delivered in the background, and you can pick up on them if they're there. And I almost think right the, <laughs> that what the movie does is it aims to it puts all of its um, satire on the surface. And like and makes it really obvious and then kind of it kind of lets its humor hit on the offbeat a lot of the time mm-hmm. so that the satire the satire is there on the top the girl power the friendship the the, the well the rupturing of the band and then the the friendship bringing them back together is all there on the surface it's all very frenetic and bubblegum but the gags a lot of the time la- land on the offbeat yeah it's like a very, it has this absurdist streak to it that mm. I think is, that that might have even been off-putting to people in a way. Like, there are just times where they just let Alan Cumming and Parker Posey be so weird in oh. a way that doesn't <laughs> really even jive with the broader satirical comedy, but it's just weird for its own sake. And it is so funny and great. I should probably um, wrap up the central trio with Rosario oh, yeah, Dawson. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, and I would, I would, so Rosario Dawson is the guitarist and... Base. Oh, sorry, yeah, bass guitarist. One. Um, and <laughs> yeah, and she is kind of the sensible one of the band, the one who seems the most like a real person, I think. Mm-hmm. But also, I kind of feel like the movie doesn't know what to do with her yeah. as as much as the other two beyond that. Because she is funny and she has some good gags and she has some good deliveries. But when I when I say the movie doesn't really know what to do with her, I kind of mean in all departments. Like I kind of feel like it doesn't know how to dress her and how to style her. Hmm. compared to the white girls and it is ultimately a very white movie and it's and it's you know attacking an area of pop culture that's very white and yeah i I kind of feel like the movie doesn't know what to do with rosario dawson Hmm. and this was this was rosario like pretty early into her career she had done a couple things Hmm. so far but i think to a mainstream audience she would have been pretty unknown which i think also looking back makes it feel weirder that she doesn't get more to do like i almost wonder if it wouldn't have stood out as much at the time because to an extent 
it really is, and like this is sort of a plot point, but it really is a Josie movie first and then the other two. But because Tara Reed's bit is so obvious, it's like you feel like you're getting more screen time with her. And because, I mean, like, essentially Val is just, like, the cool one in a way. <laughs> like, I think Val mm. just comes across as so cool in this movie, but she has less of an obvious bit. And it does end up feeling like a little bit of, not a waste, but you're like, oh, re- like you're saying, like, Rosario Dawson can do more than this if they had given it to her. Because uh, right, she kind of gets a breakthrough, what, mid-90s in Larry Clark's Kids, and then mm-hmm. has little roles in, like, stuff that, you know, in, in, in bits and pieces between now and then. But I kind of have always seen her breakthrough as 25th Hour, the, the following year, the Spike Lee movie. Mm-hmm. And that's when it felt like her her career kind of exploded. And so this is this is kind of this weird in a movie that now has a has a profile I feel, but this this weird kind of pre fame Rosario, mm. and that's why, as you say, it's sort of you. It's weird to see her in something where she's not one of the main things that you're there to see, really. And then, but similarly, I wonder if I don't know if that perception that she's the cool one is partly because it's Rosario Dawson. It's like you would expect that any character that she's playing. No, I think that they make, there's a little, so that we first meet the Pussycats during like sort of almost like a music video segment for their song, Three mm. Small Words, which is uh, also a great song. When that, um, and when I do that feel hits like in the title sequence it's currently. so good. Uh. I feel like Josie's sort of like the punk rock cool girl one. Melody's obviously the airhead. And then Valerie's like, you know, we see her like, volunteering and doing like running a marathon and like doing like these cool things like i do i do feel like i sort of have a sense of who she is a little bit it just maybe doesn't feed into her character as much but i do think the three girls are really great as a unit and like the three actresses are really great together there's scenes where they're just like hanging out on a plane and the way you know a lot of this movie is very heightened and over the top but the scene where they're like hanging out on the plane and talking about their bus pass where they all three jumped into the photo like it feels very sweet and realistic and you feel like there's a little bit of improv happening just in terms of like oh she sat on her lap and she said this comment to her and like they just lock into this really great dynamic with the three of them i think that is rosario dawson's like the the strongest indicator of her talent in this movie yeah is just how natural and comfortable she seems on screen and yeah there are there are scenes like I'm thinking at the start when they've got the banter with um, Missy Pyle and Paolo mm-hmm. Costanzo in the in the trailer, and that that like Rosario's just kind of sat there and drops the line to Missy Pyle about her fly being undone, and then you just uh, uh, you kind of hold on the pussycats just giggling together for mm-hmm. like five ten seconds, and it is it's lovely the way that they interact, and I I, I do think that kind of you know early two thousands girl power lands because of that, yeah. I, I would be interested in, in what you think there, Caroline, about whether the movie does have kind of a male gaze. I don't, yeah, as you say, I don't know whether it is just the way that people were styled in this era. Yeah. But I, yeah, it, it, it did feel to me every so often like it was, and now this is the scene that hopefully we'll get the guys to watch. Maybe we can, mm. maybe we can drop a promotional image of this or feature this scene in the trailer and they'll go, Oh, it's it's the girl I fancied from that that other movie and that other movie, and they're together and they and they're dressed like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I you know, and I feel like this ties in like together with a lot of the things we're talking about. But the sort of like late '90s, early 2000s were just an absolutely ridiculous time in culture. Like looking back on this time, it was all of this excess, this like pre 9/11, like nothing bad will ever happen. Essentially, what this movie is satirizing is already so absurd that I almost feel mm. like 
not that the movie doesn't know what to do with it, but like the line between what it is just being and what it is satirizing is like impossible to tell. And I think even from now, or maybe then it's like, are they dressing them in these crazy outfits as satire or because these outfits actually look cool? Like they're, it's like almost impossible to tell the line. And I actually think like backdoor lover as a song is sort of like an example of that too. Cause I do think a lot of like NSYNC and Backstreet Boys songs, if you look at the lyrics, they are weirdly sexual in a way where you're like, Oh, this doesn't, like the 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 way they're singing it and the way they're presenting it is like romantic, but it is really weird that a bunch of just like nine year old girls are singing these like you know sort of sexualized songs, and so this movie like heightens it, but almost doesn't. You know, it's like so absurd to start out with that I don't know how far it can heighten it. So to me, in terms of like I don't know potential male gaziness, like it falls into that category of like this time was absurd. Like I do think it was just expected that women just like didn't wear clothes in a way like you had all these low rise jeans, like you didn't really have shirts. Like it was such an absurd time. So I I almost can't tell if the movie's just leaning into that or satirizing it or maybe that thing of having its cake and eating it too that you were talking about earlier. It's the real tail end of the MTV generation, right? It's yeah. the it's the tail end of the TRL version of MTV before we're about to transition into the Osbournes and the Hills and reality TV becoming a, a major thing. It is, I mean, like 2001 ends up being this kind of nexus point in culture be- because of because of 9-11. And, and I think because we kind of, you know, it's, it, it's the perfect movie to land at this point where you can just satirize how ridiculous it had all become. And we should talk about the product placement more explicitly. Yeah. I mean, as Seb mentioned at the start, None of these companies were paid for it, but I'm presuming. And, and if you haven't, so if you haven't seen this movie, like when we say product placement, like they're on an airplane and every inch of the airplane says Target and has a Target logo. And at one point, we're in Melody's bathroom and it ha- every it's like there's literally McDonald's logo on her shower curtain. Of the product placement gags, the McDonald's shower yeah. I think is the funniest because that's the most incongruous. <laughs> All of her loofahs are like McDonald's. Um, food items yeah. that are like sort of personified like every inch of this movie has a logo on it and this is not just within the world of they've been transported off to the big city where they are uh, where they're now a pop band and the subliminal messaging so the subliminal messaging that's been played under their music is you want a big mac orange is the cool color now go and buy orange clothes you want a coca-cola don't you don't you need some new Nike trainers? It's all it's all yeah. that playing. And my favorite music. one, Heath Ledger is the new Matt Damon. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like they're selling everything. Like they're selling people. They come up with new slang, like instead of cool, they say jerkin. Mm. It's just like that there's this whole underground industry that is just controlling culture and is telling, you know, is sort of turning essentially turning our youth into robots who all want the same thing because they're just want to control us. But again, I think that's that it's the smart thing that the movie does, is it doesn't just it doesn't go this subliminal messaging is, you know, they live style being underlaid under all the messaging that you're actually seeing. And you're being, you're being turned into mindless drones without knowing it or seeing it or realizing it. The entire world of Josie and the Pussycats has this product placement front and center in non-subliminal messages, you know, non-subliminal ways. So like I said, when there's the Evian at the back of the tank in the aquarium and you know, like, that's what a wilder joke is the absurd that it's Evion as if the tank is filled with Evion. Mm. Uh, the, like, 
it's not that absurd that you would turn up to an aquarium or something and that this right. exhibit this exhibit is brought to you by by so and so. And then I love at the start when so you, you get the you you meet Dijor, you hear Backdoor Lover, they find out, Alan Cumming parachutes out of the plane, and the plane crashes, Dijor are dead, or we think they're dead, and um and then Alan Cumming and his pilot walk into Riverdale and saying, Oh, I wonder wonder where we'll find the next band and then we you know, flash cut to the opening track, which, as we've already spoken about, absolutely bangs. And as they're walking into Riverdale, this sign says, Welcome to Riverdale, brought to you by... And then there are like 12 <laughs> corporate logos underneath it. And I think that's the smart satire of the movie. It's go- it's not going to you like, all of these corporations need this subliminal advertising in order for them to thrive. It's that this is served to you in very mm. obvious ways, day in, day out. This isn't a they live style conspiracy trying to get you to act in a certain way. You are just being told, hey, at the side of the football pitch over there, it says Coca-Cola. So yeah. we we think because of that, you're going to be more likely to buy a Coca-Cola than a Pepsi. And that is true, right? That's how marketing works. Like you make those investments, you put that more places and people are going to buy those brands instead of mm-hmm. the competing brands. But that's... It couldn't be more front and center, and I like I like that that's what the movie does. That it frames it as if it's around this subliminal stuff, but it's actually going to you. It's not subliminal at all. It's just yeah. <laughs> this is the consumerist culture that you know I think had reached its peak and excess in two thousand and one, pre nine eleven. But you know, twenty years later, hasn't gone away. Mm-hmm. You know, as you know, we 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 have museums sponsored by Shell. Yeah, I feel like the movie's just pointing out, like, look at what you live with every day. Like, yes, you don't have a literal McDonald's shower curtain, but like, like you're saying, every single time you turn on anything, it's brought to you by this or sponsored by this. And I think I do think that this product placement gag was a thing that really put off critics. Like a lot of critics felt like they were either literally taking money to promote these brands, which made them hypocritical, or even if they weren't literally doing that, that it was just hypocritical in some way. But I don't know. To me, it was just so obvious. Like, even as an 11-year-old, it was so obviously a joke. And and a joke at these brands' expenses, right? It's not... Like, the movie is very kind to a lot of things. That's what puzzles me about the, the product placement. And I don't know if either of you know the answer. So the movie didn't replace receive any money. But I'm assuming right. the brands had to sign off on their inclusion. They did. Because I was reading about this. There were some brands that said no, that they read the script and they were Mm. like, no, you're entirely making fun of us. Why would we want to be a part of this? And then some brands, like I think uh, one example they said, like Target is just such a big brand. They like almost didn't care. (laughs) Like it it almost like didn't (laughs) matter to them if they were being satirized or not. Um, But yeah, there were some things that said no to them because they didn't like how it was represented. So all of those brands will have to have read the script and gone, this is an entire, this is a satire on consumerist culture about how brands like ours because we are specifically being referenced it will do anything and resort to nefarious means to sell yeah. stuff to kids and they've all gone it's pr- yeah but th- look at the free advertising we're getting yeah. so, so yeah. let's do it exactly that's the that's the thing i mean it is it's sort of it's not product placement in the sense of they're not getting paid for it but it is it's advertising all of those brands. Sure. It's making you think of those brands. If you like this movie, you'll associate those brands with this movie, and it and it will have the same effect as if they'd paid for it. Yeah, but it's also so 
it like really is poking fun at them. Do you know what I mean? Like McDonald's does not come out of this looking good. Like it makes you it, it makes you think about how ridiculous it is that McDonald's is in every kind of makes aspect. me want a McDonald's bathroom, <laughs> to be honest. But I think that the meta the meta narrative of this movie then is amazing as well, right? That you've got these brands that have made that calculation of it's better to just stick our brand on this movie regardless of the context and regardless of the negative connotation that the movie's going to land on it, we still think having the, the visibility is more valuable. And again, I think they're right. I think they are right. I think you don't you don't walk away from this... However much you might walk away from this movie and go, God, it is ridiculous, isn't it? Bloody McDonald's. I don't think you're less likely to buy a McDonald's because of it. In fact, we've just no, said the I word McDonald's. No, but I don't think McDonald's you're more X-Mas. likely. To I, think, I, think, exactly. I think, yeah, because it puts it in your I head. Don't think you, I don't think we think we are as individuals... But you know, I think probably mm. that you know that this is the way that brand marketing works. Is that mm. I mean, Joe? Time, Joe, yeah, I, <laughs> Joe is speaking from the position of being a marketer. Yes, I work. I work in marketing, <laughs> and, and 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 it is true that everyone thinks it doesn't work. Yeah, the, on re- them, the reason why a company does. like Coca Cola will, like I say, put their but you know pump millions and millions of pounds into just having ads that literally is just their logo, nothing more as awareness is that that it, mm. it does translate into sales and a lot of it a lot of it does end up being kind of subconscious and subliminal but the brand but do we not feel like to me it's like this is in every movie right this is in every marvel movie this is in every transformers movie like all these things we love and we don't call them out because they're not like hey here's what we know what we're doing josie and the pussycats which does it mm. without taking the money and in a very satirical way it's called hypocritical for it. Like, I think that, you know what I mean? Like, all of these other movies. No, I think it's a genius move on behalf of the movie. I think it's it's absolutely perfect because it, it kind of, you know, they're able to have the fun within the movie. And then the meta-narrative of the movie is, look, we're right. The jokes we're making in the movie are entirely right by virtue mm-hmm. of these companies signing up to this. And I, and I think the movie would have such of a lesser impact if you were talking about well, if in fact, if you did what TV Riverdale does, which is create alt-universe versions of every single brand, and they've turned it into mm-hmm. a kind of a running gag on Riverdale. But yeah, I think if you did that in this, it would be much less impactful. And, you know, being able to, you know, specifically say Matt Damon and Heath Ledger is is a lot funnier than, than having to be non-specific. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's genius. The thing I always find wild about this is how much like MTV is involved with this. And like Carson yes. Daly literally playing himself, except he's a murderous mm. version of himself who is part of this <laughs> subliminal messaging conspiracy theory and agrees to go and murder the Pussycats. Like the fact that MTV signed off on essentially saying that they are part of an evil scheme mm. to brainwash our youth. Like it is fascinating what this movie sort of either got away either i don't know if the brands were they were sort of in on the joke or they felt like it doesn't matter if we're in on the joke because we'll it's like you said it's like free images for us but yeah you're right mtv is a different matter yeah because there it's like part of the plot of this movie is that mtv is involved with this entire scheme which frequently involves murder and in best case scenario involves mind control i mean they they absolutely would have had to have been yeah in in on it so they would have had to have agreed and signed off on that wouldn't they yeah, yeah, but it's uh, and even like Carson Daly from an individual's point of view. So there is so basically what happens is Val and Melody turn up are told like, "Oh, we want to we want to put you on TRL just you two because we know kind of it feels like that it's all about Josie and so we want the world to get to know Val and Melody. So it's just going to be you two on TRL and like Josie's like, "Yeah, great because 
she's kind of the great friend all along until she starts to get brainwashed at the end. They go along to TRL. It's a fake TRL. So you think the gag is like, oh, they've been lured to this fake TRL. But then real Carson Daly turns up alongside a fake Carson Daly, who then set about trying to murder Valor Melody, which is an interesting thing for Carson Daly to sign up for in the first place. But it's it's almost so absurd that you're like, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, kind, yeah. it's kind of like when someone turns up on Curb and plays an you know, absurd version of themselves that everyone knows kind of like, okay, the poking's fun at themselves and this, and this is fun. It doesn't actually make me think that that is what the real version of this person right, is right, like. Right. It's more just playing on the on the parody. But the bit that really got me with Carson Daly is when he then does go back on television. He kind of delivers in like in standard Carson Daly talking to camera fashion. Yeah. He's like, "Hey, so we're here tonight. It's the big debut gig of the Pussycats. I hope you've all got your Pussycat ears because that's the only way that you can hear the band play tonight. I myself have already bought two. And it's so deadpan and to camera and yeah. so nakedly that kind of like, you know, I'm just here to sell you shit, right? I don't care about any of this. I'm just here yeah. as the stooge to sell you stuff. And it's really on the nose and it doesn't feel demonstrably different from what Carson Daly <laughs> was actually doing, apart from yeah. the fact that he didn't try and murder people. <laughs> Don't we know? Yeah. And this, one of the big jokes there too, which I feel like is maybe lost to the history books a little bit, but like Tara Reid and Carson Daly were like a Hollywood power couple at the time. So the whole joke about him trying to murder her and her being like, I would never date you. This is all like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Ah. <laughs> or a thing that I think no uh, one ever thinks about Tara Reid no. and Carson Daly as a couple anymore. But that was sort of the big gag of that thing at the time. This this movie really makes you think of what a lost opportunity Tara Reid's career was. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is a character that has almost nothing in common with a character in American Pie. Which I think, you know, is not the most interesting role, but I think she's pretty good in it as like the ideal girlfriend in that movie. The what She's the one kind of girlfriend that exists from the start of the movie. And she's kind of charming. And and here she plays like the polar opposite of that. And you're like, oh, she had comedic range. Mm-hmm. And she's sadly become a punchline. Mm. Yeah. And it's not, not, not like Rachel Lee Cook off making Hallmark movies. She's off making Sharknado 3 mm-hmm. and the joke is on her, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But she is so funny in this. It's I mean, there's just so many. This is one of those movies where I could just quote like every line. But there's a part where she's at a party and she's like, Ooh, I have a chill up my back because of that thing you said. And she's like sitting on a giant ice sculpture. And this is, again, I love like Val is so non-judgmental, And she's just like, oh, I think it's because you're sitting on an, an ice O. And then Melody's just like, no, it wasn't the O. I still feel it. And like her delivery is so earnest. Yeah. I just love their dynamic. The, the one I quoted at the start, the, the Snoopy line. What I love about that is that there's two jokes yeah. in that joke because there's yeah. joke number one, which is responding to the sincere thing of if I could go back in time and change it all. And she's just like, oh, if I could go back in time, I'd want to do this. Like, that's a joke. And then I would want to meet Snoopy being who she yeah. wants. It's like, that's a, that's a good gag. I like that a lot. And then it's so sweet because Josie's just like, and I yeah. love that about you. Like, I love that. She's heard a line like that <laughs> yes. from her many, many times. Yeah. That you want to meet Snoopy and that you think anything's possible. Yeah. I don't know. To me, I totally get what you were saying earlier, Seb, that like there is a, a cleaner version of this movie that is just a satire. But I really like the earnestness there, too, because I think so mm. often we as a culture associate satire with like cynicism. 
So sort of a cynical satire is seen as like high art because it's sort of like nihilistic in a way. And we're like, yeah, the only truth is nihilism. But this movie is like a satire of sort of the way everything became so homogenized in terms of music in the 90s and 2000s, which I think was such a really freaked people out after, you know, this whole long era of rock and roll. And the movie is critiquing that, but it's also also mm. things that that Josie and the Pussycats music is cool, right? Like we're we're supposed to think that their music is cool. And the ultimate act is her being like, we're going to play our music that we love. And if you like it, that's cool. And if you don't, that's cool. Just decide for yourself. So the movie's sort of like, on the one hand, making fun of homogenized culture, but on the other hand, not making fun of this type of music. And I really like that as a choice. Because I think that that that's what makes it like accessible to an audience. Like I, you know, I liked this type of music too. And it didn't feel like this movie was like shitting on it. It was sort of satirizing it, but also being loving towards it. Well, yeah, I think it's poking fun at homogenized culture, but it's not being snobby about high versus low art because, you know, I I, as a teenager loved pop punk um, and still find myself, you know, every so often going back and listening to those bands. But I mean, there's there's no doubt that it is, you know, it's not high skill level. It's it's pretty much like three chord progressions, which is what Josie and the Pussycats music is. The fact that their music sounds like a bunch of songs that you already like. The DuJour song sounds like a bunch of songs you already like. But that's, it's, I think what the movie's kind of saying is like, yeah. like what you like, but just know what you're getting into. I mean, the, I, I definitely, I, without doubt, I think it's, I think it's sincere about the music and it might be being a bit kind of silly with the lyrics sometimes and, and the songs are a bit schmaltzy as well. But there's no doubt that, I mean, I don't think any of the, certainly I don't think any of the Pussycats music is parody. And the reason why I don't think that and why I think that it's completely sincere in what it's doing is you just have to look at the people who they got to write and produce the songs, you know, and you've got, obviously, I mean, obviously, I presume you guys know this, that the vocals are Kay Hanley from Letters to Cleo, and she wrote a bunch of the songs on it. But you've also got, <laughs> as songwriters and or producers, um, the, the sadly recently deceased Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne wrote a, a couple of the songs and produced a bunch of them. One of the songs also got um, that's also co-written by uh, Schlesinger has got Jane Weedlin as a co-writer. Anna Waronka, who uh, is of that dog, who are one of my favourite like mid nineties, mid late nineties post Weezer bands. She wrote a couple of them. Adam Duritz from the Counting Crows wrote a couple of them. It's like there's a there's a big team yeah, of people gross. who are great and respected you know indie singer songwriter uh, band members of that era who they got into do the to the soundtrack and that's why the soundtrack's good you know? and i wonder whether i wonder whether that's part of why as well you get the kind of the critics not really getting it because mm-hmm. they're going hang on you're making fun of that stuff but you're not making fun of that crap music that my teenager likes why not and the reason is because you know because like even if it's not the most skillful thing in the world it's still kind of good and catchy and fun yeah. And it and it's fine to be all of those things. And you know, like it's it's fine to be like cuz mm. Dejour aren't painted in a negative light. Like they have kind of like standard band infighting at the start. Right. And they're very silly, but again, not mean-spirited in its silliness. Yeah, they're just they're just silly nice boys who are a bit a bit jealous of each other and just want to sing some pop songs, you know? If anything, I feel like the joke is like, oh yeah, these boy bands were like literal children. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the way that Alan Cumming interacts with them is like they're toddlers almost. And that's sort of the joke is like, yeah, it is weird that we like, you know, take these kids that are like 16 on X Factor or whatever. And we're like, now they are world famous celebrities. But of course, behind the scenes, they're just like these little petty jealousy of teenagers. 
Um, I do want to read a little bit. So I'm not trying to, you know, fully shit on Roger Ebert or anything. I think he can at his best is like a wonderfully empathetic critic and has written some obviously, you know, great reviews and reviews that sort of like shaped the way criticism works. But he gave Josie and the Pussycats half a star. Wow. Just there's just a couple lines. I mean, this review, it starts out. Josie and the Pussycats are not dumber than the Spice Girls, but they're as dumb as the Spice Girls, which is dumb enough. So that's the opening line. He also is un- he's unsure on the product placement in terms of whether the movie is sort of having its cake and eating it too. Again, so here's the thing. The prologue has some Spinal Tap overtones, but Josie ignores bountiful opportunities to be a satire of the Spice Girls and other manufactured groups and gets dragged down by a lame plot involving the scheme to control teen spending with the implanted messages. And then there's a little parenthetical. The movie calls them subliminal. Since they're sound waves, they're actually suboral. But never mind, the Pussycats would probably think suboral was a kind of foreplay. Like, this review is just scathing. Mm. Like, he really, he both hates this movie and, like, seems to hate the fictional <laughs> characters of the Pussycats. To a degree that, like, like I will just say, like, growing up as a as a girl and a teen girl and a preteen girl, like a lot of that experience is just people in the world saying everything you like is bad. It is bad. It is, you are bad for liking it. And it is like, like, I just can't say how, how much that is internalized. Right. Like it is like, and I think that this has been a long, this is just like the history of modern culture. Like it's like, Oh, when the Beatles are young and cute and teen girls love them, we scoff at teen girls for being these ridiculous people that are screaming and crying. And then, Oh, well now the Beatles are, have artistic merit and they're the greatest band of all time. And it's like, isn't that funny how this thing that you were mocking when the audience was predominantly teen girls, maybe actually you could say, Oh, teen girls were entirely ahead of the curve in, in that one. And like, we should have respected their opinions. But I feel like all we took away was this idea of just like, mocking whatever teen girls like and i think you see this down to like you know something like the hunger games franchise which i think is sort of the messaging of that whatever that series of books and movies like i think that what that is exploring is smarter than any sci-fi or action franchise of the 21st century like i think that's smarter than any modern star wars movie i think it's smarter than any marvel movie but i think because that was a series aimed at teen girls more so than something like the marvel movies which i think are aimed at teen boys Hunger Games frequently gets talked about. It's like, oh, yeah, that's like mostly the love triangle thing. But it's cool that they throw in some political stuff there. That seemed cool. Like there's a there's an assumption that this isn't good. And if it is good, it's like a surprise or unintentional or the movie didn't set out to do that because there's a base level assumption that it's like not good because it's aimed for teen girls. And I feel like that permeates into something like this review. Like I think you you can't really come away reading that review feeling like Ebert tried to actually engage with what the movie was doing like it feels like a review where he went in with the mindset of what this was going to be and then along the way each thing confirmed that and it's so frustrating to read and like like really just brings out for me all of these like frustrations i had with culture growing up well i think it's what we were saying before as well right that it, it that I, what Ebert, what Ebert's review there literally was like I, I i get the satire but why is it not satis- satirizing all of the things that i don't like Sh- like uh that's uh, why is it not satirizing everything that a 13 year old girl likes and i think you're dead on in terms of the way that we view i can't say with enough confidence that this is still the case and is still the case as much as it was back then but as a teenage boy growing up at the same time Mm -hmm. that permeated with me as well which is that stuff that teenage girls are into is bad and because they like it it probably means it's bad 
And if there's something, if there was a band that my sister liked, mm-hmm. like the Spice Girls, they're bad. And if there's a movie that girls in my class at school like, it's bad. And I found myself in the past 10 years revisiting a lot of female-focused um, pop culture from my teens and actually trying to reappraise it and going, was it, is this bad? Has this always been bad? Or did I just think it was bad because that's what society was kind of telling me what to think? And, you know, in some examples, I went back and rewatched Love Actually, and I, I still think it's bad. Um, I, re- I went back and rewatched The Holiday, and I think it's super charming. And, you know, just, just to pick, like, t- two romantic comedies from, from my teens. And I think what you're talking about in terms of that, you know, internalizing the way that pop culture talks to teenage girls mm-hmm. in, in particularly our kind of teenage years, I I definitely frequently look back at the way that pop culture talks to me, the way that movies and TV shows and, like I say, kind of lads mags and early exploration of the internet mm-hmm. and, you know, like movie cult, what, what movie blogging culture was in those, in those early years. And, and, you know, the, and, and the people that were writing about culture, that everything was through a very male lens. And I think that, that so much of it was toxic in the way it kind of divided out the genders. And I, I talked about this a lot on um, our Dr. Horrible episode, but that this kind of, there was the lads mag culture. And then the answer to that seemed to be the nice guy culture and that the nice guy, but the nice guy culture was almost like the nice guy deserved the girl. And I think that we're seeing, I think we're seeing a lot of that, you know, kind of bear it's ugly through it's ugly fruit in 2020 where you're seeing these um like subcultures like comics and games and comedy that are full of you know kind of probably people who identified as being the nice guys in that era who've grown up with a pretty toxic attitude towards women and i and i think at, at times in my teenage years i i had that as well and it took i think probably you know going to university and being surrounded by lots of smart and competent women and viewing the world a little bit differently through the pop culture I consumed and the people I talked to, to kind of shed myself of that. But yeah, I think, you know, and that's, that's me through, through like my male experience of that kind of going, that was the way that I was felt like I was consuming culture and the effect it had on me. I can only imagine the flip side of that, you know, for you of a being told that everything that, you like is kind of mm-hmm. inherently shit because that is what that Ebert review is right it's like why are we not making fun of the things that teenage girls like and then also you know the way that men were conditioned and then the, the way that mm. men would treat girls who were into that kind of stuff as a, as a result it was it was a it was a shitty time and I'm not saying it was a good thing that 9-11 happened but it oh boy <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That line where you know where he says you know oh it's uh, you know it, it doesn't like for example doesn't satirize the Spice Girls. Well, it's like for starters, um, Spice World as a movie had already come out at that point. So what's the point in trying to make a movie that that is a, a comedy about the concept? Which is of the Spice honestly Girls? a very and, self-aware movie as well. Yeah, like totally, you know, exactly. people can like or dislike it, but that's not a movie where the Spice Girls are not in on the joke. Yeah, they, about they've what the already movie is. sent themselves up. Yeah, there. but also there is. I don't really get what there is to satirize about a pop group in the sense of the pop group is not the machine and you don't you shouldn't satirize the non-powerful individuals and 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 you know and and part of the plot of Josie and the Pussycats is that the pop stars are not 
powerful. They are they are kind of yeah. effectively victims. You know, they're they're kind of people who are put through the machine. And it's, it's I find it interesting that you you know you um he said that he said um it starts out like it might have a Spinal Tap kind of mm-hmm. feel to it. I mean, again, I Spinal Tap is commonly described as a satire. But I don't think of it as a satire in the sense of yes, it's kind of it's it's obviously a spoof documentary, and Spinal Tap are fictional in the context of the film. Although obviously they did kind of become a real band after that, but they are characters and they're fictional. But I think if you watch Spinal Tap, and if you watch Spinal Tap, certainly as many times as I have, Spinal Tap is affectionate towards yeah. its characters. Yes, it is. It is poking fun at rock and roll and and at the excesses of rock and roll. But I don't think it's a satire in the sense of it's because I think I think satire as a word has to contain a certain level of pointed kind of undercutting and and speaking to power and it's you know like the thick of it is satire because it is it is targeting the people mm-hmm. in power I don't think Spinal Tap is a satire and again this is why when we talked before about the sort of the tone and the fact that this film kind of surrounds the the jokiness and and the kind of the satire of the industry it surrounds it with that the sincerity and as i say i think maybe it's just because it's got parker posey and eugene levy and because i'd watched one of them recently the thing that i did have in the back of my mind was what would this film look like if it was more the christopher guest style of humor and it's a similar thing where something like best in show or mighty wind obviously you know best in show has got the parker posey uh character and and her husband who are appalling it's got a couple of characters who are appalling but it's also, even though it is poking fun at people gently, it's very warm and particularly yeah. best in show where like you're 100% rooting for Eugene Levy yeah. and Catherine O'Hara when they win. It's, it's, it's nice. It's like, it's, it's, his films have always got that warmth. They're never just cruel and biting. And this does that in a different way. And I think, as I say, I think sort of the, the, the way of doing that that works for me is more the slightly more kind of grown-up warmth of mm-hmm. a Christopher Guest mockumentary. Sure, sure, sure. But that, to me, is how you do something that, on the one hand, is good at poking fun at a machine like the pop music industry or the dog show world or the folk music industry or the rock industry. You, you poke fun at the machine, but you have a warmth inherent aimed at the individuals and you know i don't want to be a person who sits here and tells roger ebert that he's that he's wrong about films but i really feel like he's missed the mark there both on on what this film's trying to do and what and what it's setting out to do and also on where satire should be targeting itself and you know what when when caroline said before about you know kind of you think of satire as being more acerbic being more the thick of it kind of satire Mm. And and that this isn't this is kind of this this warm and bubbly approach to satire. I do think it actually probably sits closest to the Christopher Guest movies. I think it yeah. you know that's the satire it has most in common with. And I think to be honest with you, Seb, I think probably the 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 difference it has is it is just appealing to a different audience. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. It's more absurdist too. I think it's like those you know like Best in Show is ostensibly trying to be somewhat realistic with what it's mm. mocking. I, Josie is like so over the top at times and what i think is delightful but it's like combining the the warm christopher guest satire with this like insane absurdist streak of like parker posey coming down the stairs in a giant musical number at her own party for like no discernible reason (laughs) and i think it's wrong to say that it doesn't satirize the music because because it does satirize elements of the music you know Mm -hmm. as we talked about the kind of the ingrained sexuality of the boy band music 
And and I think also, you know, what the movie suggests is, you know, that there's a lot of these bands that, you know, are good musicians because they can go out and play this stuff and they kind of get the interesting stuff grated off them by an industry that just wants to sell products. And I think that's in there as well. And, you, you know, you see within the movie, there are two potential versions of Josie and the Pussycats, one who kind of are able to retain their artistic integrity and one that aren't. And it's never that they want to lose that integrity. It's that the the industry wants to take it from them. So I don't, I don't think it's completely absent either. I th- and I think the absurdism and the satire does come, like meld really well in Alan Cumming and Parker Posey characters who are just like, they're like, okay, we just need another band to fill in for this one that we just killed off. And there's like a great moment where Alan Cumming's just like, where am I going to find a band in Riverdale? And the Pussycats are crossing the street and he almost hits them and he takes a CD cover and holds it up to see if it fits they fit on the cover of a CD and there's a sign that says number one band going back in the background, like a ridiculous moment. Like the movie barrels through and he's like, he signs them before he's ever heard their music. Like they literally climb the charts in a week. Like there's a lot of the movie will just go along and then Josie will be like, wow, isn't it weird that this all happened in one week? And that's sort of like, <laughs> I think the absurdism comes through really well you know there. What, I think that I, I kind of, that's how I remember pop music working yeah. in the early 2000s. Like, as a kid, I mean, and, and so from a from a British experience, I used to watch, you know, lots of children's TV shows. And on a, on a Friday, those TV shows used to like, there'd be a pop act that would turn up and play. And I remember when Billy Piper turned up for the first time to play her debut single when I was a kid. And I was like, who is this girl? Yeah. And what's this song she's singing? It sounds fun. And then I was watching SMTV Live, which was the Ant and Deck and Cat Dealey presented show on a Saturday morning. <laughs> and which was followed directly by CD UK, which was basically like kids top of the pops. And she was on that again. And then she was on it. She was on everything for like, you know, a fortnight. And then that's, yeah. I, I imagine that single fit, you know, if, if it wasn't number one, it was in the top five of the charts. And that's kind of what I, I remember. I remember a load of like kid focus bands in the UK it happened with Busted and McFly, S Club 7 had their own kids TV yeah. show and then they were number one in it. it. It kind of felt like that that was how it happened. And I don't know yeah. if there was more stuff going on in the background, but these were, even if they were individuals rather than groups, it was manufactured pop that was being, and you know, the Spice Girls were that as well, right? They were, yeah. there were five girls put together and then well, they also, dropped the Well also with the Spice Girls, it was, it was a hundred percent, it was because I remember being, you know, in in that time I was watching a lot of of music TV channels, and we had a channel in the UK at the time called the Box, which was like a video jukebox. So you'd get listings of songs, and you'd phone up a number for the song you wanted to play. It was literally like a dial a jukebox thing. But obviously, you know, it wasn't. It, there were enough people phoning up for it. It wasn't just a case of. I mean, actually, in the early days, you could actually phone up, and about an hour later, the thing that you chose would come on, and even if it was something quite obscure. But very quickly, it turned into more of a machine. And the Spice Girls basically got bought an unbelievable amount of airplay for Wannabe before anyone had heard who they were. There was this weird video where, and even just like the concept of a girl group like that like it wasn't a case of here's the latest girl group Mm -hmm. like there was there hadn't really been anything quite like that before so it was this weird cheap looking pop video but it just played and played and played and played and played and obviously the reason for that we know now is that it had that at the time it seemed like it was you know it was literally this like bedroom operation and someone had made this cheap video actually no it had the might of simon fuller behind it but 
that is the point. It was, it was yeah, okay, it wasn't like a subliminal marketing campaign thing like in this film, but the principle yeah. of it being an industry thing where, where and, and we were kind of bludgeoned and bombarded with it. So when it actually then came time to actually release the single and actually start showing it, you know, on kind of more mainstream TV and stuff, it had already had this kind of hammering away at people. Yeah. That... And, 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 you know, you look back, Wannabe is a great pop track. The Spice Girls, uh, the girls, they had, you know, kind of a, a great gimmick as a band. They they were fun personalities, you know, uh, in in the same way as Josie and the Pussycats. I don't think, like, all of that machine behind them doesn't mean that the products was crap, right? It doesn't mean yeah. that it doesn't mm. mean we need to make fun of it. And actually, do you know what? This is this is funny. Um, a clip from Wannabe was on. <laughs> my wife and I are rewatching the Adam and Joe show on um, all four at the moment, which uh, Carolina mm-hmm. is a, a very British thing. Um, <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> and um, what jo- one of, one of whom is Joe Cornish? He went on to direct Attack the Block and yeah, the yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and. There was a clip from Wannabe on that, and I was like, I I turned to uh, my wife and was like, I did not remember as a kid how much of these girls you saw in this video. Like it, yeah. th- it was again like no bras, lots yeah. of stomachs on show, and I was like, oh wow, that's that's quite jarring. That's not how I remember it. And I think that you know, similar to this movie, you know, that might just be what the fashion was the at era. the time, yeah. and what yeah. well, and and also. The way that women were packaged up to yeah. sell to sell pop culture, which is to be honest, I mean, has things have things changed as much? I think no, there's no. room for different types of things a little bit more. But if you go to you know these top girl groups, I think a lot of times there's like Little Mix, who I love. Weirdly, I'm like obsessed with them, and but I feel like their whole career has just been like we need to break through, so let's just continually sexualize ourselves more and more with like a little veneer of female empowerment and. It's tricky. Like, all this stuff is so tricky and, like, corporate feminism and corporate girl power. Like, I feel like this era, those sort of late 90s, early 2000s, especially, it was, like, so complicated because then the one time you were being told, like, everything you like as a teen girl is bad. But on the other hand, I feel like there was kind of a boom of this, like, girl power things. Probably started with the Spice Girls, but, like, a lot of movies I watched at this era, like, Bring It On and Miss Congeniality and Legally Blonde and... Even, like, the McGee, like, Charlie's Angels movies, like, these were all movies I loved, and it was, like, cool. They're, like, all these cool women. They're all very different. Like, I don't know. There was, like, a cool little pocket that was happening right around now that I consider Josie and the Pussycats, like, a big part of. I think I watched Josie and the Pussycats around a similar time to watching Bring It On for the first time. Or sure, like, probably yeah. Not massively. And that Shoot, was another one that I just, I definitely was aware of Bring It On when I was a yeah. kid. And I was like, why would I watch Bring It On? Yeah. And, you know, revisiting as that, I was like... Holy shit! This is the again like and no like I think bring it on to better movie than Josie and the Pussycats. Even I think it's amazing, but yeah, I just wouldn't have touched it as a teenager. Yeah, and do yeah. you know, I thought it was it was funny. I think Seb, you mentioned Haley Steinfeld earlier and how she would she would star in this movie if it was made now. It also got me thinking. I, I googled the lyrics to this song while we were on the podcast when she kind of launched her pop career. She came out with a song called "Love Myself," which I don't know if you guys are aware yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, 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 I remember a, that a, came a, out. Really good pop song. I'm not going to read the lyrics the way that I did Backdoor Lover, but you read the lyrics and it feels like pretty nakedly a song about masturbation. Yeah, like 100%. as I was going to say, is it is is it like Me Party from the Muppet movie? 
<laughs> so, do, do, do you know what? It is a it is a lot more on the nose than the yeah. knee party. I mean, like I, also to bring it around, that song is prominently featured in an episode of Star Girl. So you can, oh wow, whenever I mean, that comes around, you can appreciate Haley Steinfeld's lyrics even more. It's a really fun <laughs> pop song, and I just remember at the time her being interviewed about it. And I, when did that song come out? Maybe four years ago, five years ago. Yeah, five years ago, twenty fifteen, and. I think at that point, I, 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 I don't know, I probably was still like, oh, the true grit girl has turned back up and she's and, and she's grown up now. And uh, she was like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. It's about female empowerment. It's not masturbating. No, I don't know what you... And you're like, but it is though. <laughs> yeah, it's a very backdoor lover uh, yeah. single. Yeah. Okay, here's the thing where maybe I can explain an American pop culture thing to you. Did you guys have, do you guys know what Mr. Movie Phone is? Was that yes, like a I wanted to ask you? you. I have okay. looked it up, but I wanted you to explain it anyway because that is completely, that has no relevance in this country. <laughs> yeah, so it was just this voice where this was obviously like pre internet days and you would just, you know, dial up the phone number that had for your local movie theater. And it was one guy that sort of would record all of the messages for what times the movies were. So we'd call up and be like, okay, it's Ronnie's and the show times for Josie and the Pussycats are one thirty, four forty-five, seven thirty, And you would just like, I mean, I did this because I just loved going to the movies. So this was like hours of my childhood, just calling up, <laughs> listening to this voice. You would write down all the times. If you missed one, you'd have to listen through the whole thing again. And they would literally just read off, you know, all 10 movies that were playing that day, just the movie all the times the movie and you just had to wait till the one you wanted you know came through so it was just a very like weirdly like it's a funny choice of something to satirize because it is was like a very ubiquitous thing but probably not a thing you really thought about per se until you know it was just like you took it for granted so i think it's a very funny choice for the sort of the voice that does the subliminal messages in this but yeah i was wondering how it played for a uk audience no i just i just kind of i, I kind of assumed that it was some kind of mtv or some kind of ubiquitous voice that was that was known in the us yeah did you guys have that thing where you would call up the movie theaters though a version of that i don't i was probably too young you know to remember yeah i mean we definitely for a long time we had automated like phoning up to book a ticket because there's a great there's a great bit of one of the alan partridge mid-morning matters where he's phoning up the odeon to try and book a ticket to see inception and they would be terrible at detecting what you were trying to say and they would say if this is correct say yes if not say no and there's this alan partridge clip where obviously you can't hear the other end of the phone and he's just going inception no (laughs) inception no Inception. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's probably about the closest. But no, I mean, we've we've never really in this country. I think probably apart from things like the speaking clock, that informational phone line thing. Mm-hmm. I think it was probably more a thing in the seventies and eighties, actually. Yeah. But I, I definitely, I don't think it persisted as long as it seemed to in America. But I don't know if, for example, you know, did you ever have teletext in in America? Not that I know of. I think once we got teletext, phone, which was a thing where you press a button, it was basically kind of like the internet, but on your TV on a black screen, and you'd you'd put in, you'd key in a number to get to a page, and it would give you news updates, and it would give you things like wow. local cinema times and the weather and stuff. It really was kind of like a mini internet over the TV, yeah. Um, way before the internet was a, was a thing for most people, so I think once we had that, we yeah. wouldn't phone up for that kind of stuff as much, except for the speaking clock, which has always persisted. Yeah. And as well, I don't know whether our cinema distribution is different in the UK, or it certainly was by the time that I was a teenager. Like, I had to get a train into the city centre 
to watch a movie and I kind of just, by the time I was a teenager, me and my friends would take the train to the city centre, walk to the cinema, see what time the movies were on, buy our tickets and then hang around town until it was time to yeah. see the movie and then yeah, go back. Yeah. So we ne- there was never Falling any planning up. that went into it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And there were, yeah. I mean, it is funny because it's one of those things like the Carson Daly dating Tara Reid thing that like no kid today knows what Mr. Movie Phone is. Like it was very much a joke <laughs> of its era, but it does lead to, I think my favorite joke in Josie and the Pussycats is when they discover it's Mr. Movie Phone and Missy Pyle, who is like very funny in this movie, but used very strangely. And then they sort of lampshade mm. how sort of pointless she is and in, in her acknowledging she's just there because she's in the comics. I do like that joke. The, uh, yeah, that, that joke is another one of my favorites. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I love when they first hear it. She's like, it's Mr. Movie Phone. How did you get him to do that? You slept with him. And like, <laughs> A, it's funny that her mind leads to that. But B, it's mad. It's funny how mad she is about it. It's as if she mm. like, <laughs> was Mr. Movie Phone was like her boyfriend and, and he like cheated on her with Josie. She's just like, it's it's such an absurd joke. And it makes me laugh so mm. much. I really, really love that moment. Mm. Missy Pyle and Paolo Costanzo are, 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 are an odd little side piece. They occupy a strange position in this film. Yeah. I feel like Paolo. Okay, so we, maybe we can real quick just like get into the Alan M of it all, who's the sort of Josie love interest of it. Well, I was going to ask you a question about him before I've been we waiting wrap up. to get there. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I was just going to say, like, I think I'm I'm assuming we can all agree that Alan M is pretty forgettable. But I actually think I had kind of forgotten about Paolo Costanzo, who plays Alexander Cabot there. I mean, uh, he was manager. really there for a while because in a very short period of time, he does Road Trip. He does yeah. this, which obviously isn't a hit. And he's got that starring role in Joey before that. Well, yeah, I'm looking yeah, at Road yeah. Trip. He was in 40 Days and 40 Nights. And yeah, and, and I think Joey is kind of what kills it. But I tell you what, you look <laughs> at his IMDb profile picture, dude has aged very well. <laughs> yeah. I was like, Fox. That's, not, that's not the same guy. <laughs> that well, is... I was just going to say, I actually kind of think he's great in Josie the Pussycats. Like, he doesn't have a ton to do, but I think what he does is very funny, and I had kind of remembered him being a more forgettable character than he seemed on this rewatch. I was like, he gets some good gags. I like the weird thing at the end where he just, like, rejects consumerism by stripping naked. Like, I think that he is a better example of... He and Alan Cumming are, like, good examples of what you can do with the male characters in this movie, and Alan M is just a little bit of a... Kind of a nothing. I, I also... Road Trip is the teen movie that I was into as a teenager mm. that I'm kind of too scared to ever go back and read. Sure, I've never seen it. I kind of feel like it would... Ev- like, every element of it would hold up badly. I think it doesn't help that it's Todd Phillips, does it? <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, that, uh, and that was kind of that was for a while that uh, pre the hangover anyway that was the todd phillips movie yeah so i i haven't seen paolo costanzo in that for a long time and i kind of scared to revisit it but yeah i think he's i i think he's kind of charming in this just mm-hmm. it's it's just that him and missy pyle feel like the two characters that would just be cut yeah a hundred percent you know like it will we'll remove them from this draft of the script because there's not that the, they're really just there for the occasional little punchline that probably could be given to someone else. Like half of Missy Pyle's punchlines you feel could probably be given to Tara Reid. But I think I think they add enough value. That guy walks in at the end and he's just like, that woman has a skunk on her head. Oh, yeah. just, this is one of those movies where I genuinely could just quote the entire movie. I think, <laughs> you know, I will fully admit that my love for this is very much colored by nostalgia, but there's like lines from this that still make me laugh, that made me laugh in my childhood. I, I find it very weird that um, it's funny that when um, the the guy who's the government guy, the one yeah. who's kind of in on the plot, 
Um, and I was like, where have where have I seen him recently? What is he out of? He's funny. But he's. Do you know what he's in? He's because we rewatched it only about a week or so ago. He's the basically playing the same role because he's the general, so he's like the government general guy in Sonic the Hedgehog. He's the guy who turns <laughs> up at the end. He's there at the start. He's he's basically the guy who hires Robotnik, and then at the end when he knocks on the door and he's like, "You haven't seen that that hedgehog." So he's kind of playing the same role as the guy who's in on the plot but has deniability. <laughs> and it's yeah. just really weird that twenty years apart, yeah. he's playing basically the same role in the these two films I've watched close together. Uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, a movie that I will absolutely watch when it is free and there's nothing else to watch. <laughs> you'll you'll have a good time with it when it is. Yeah, it's, I'm just I'm just it, not going to pay for it before before it ends up on a streaming service. I want it before we get to the Alan M in the room. Um, I do I do want to briefly just talk a little bit more about Alan Cumming and Parker Posey. Yeah, because I think both of them are great here, and I think probably why we haven't spoken about them an awful lot is because they're doing what they did in, in other movies around this yeah. time. So Including Alan, Spice World, because doesn't Alan Cumming play... He's in Spice World, right? I think he's like a kind of a similar... No, it's Richard E. Grant in Spice oh, World. It's Richard okay. E. Grant well, there you go. <laughs> basically exactly the same character. Yeah, yeah you, could, you, you could yeah. sub him in. But he's doing kind of <laughs> like... No, Alan Cumming's in it too. Richard Grant and Alan Cumming are both oh, right. in Spice World. <laughs> there I think we he's go. Got, he, must, he must have a smaller part in Spice World. Yeah. Because he definitely wasn't as... You're right. As well Wikipedia known, says he is trying to use the girls as subjects for his next project. Right, and then Richard E. Grant is their Can't manager. Yeah, but Richard E. Grant is the, yeah. <laughs> it feels like kind of what he was doing around this time in stuff like the Spy Kids movies is what I was thinking about. And, and you know, what we've probably seen Alan Cumming turn up in, in a million... Son of Mask, actually, Son of the Mask, which he's in. I think he gives a similar kind of performance. Um, but it's, it's Alan Cumming kind of just throwing everything at it and being great. And you say Parker Posey kind of has that Christopher Guest vibe here. I just think the the scene in the middle of this movie where she is wearing the the outfit with the feathers protruding from her neck, yeah. which a, a is yeah. amazing in and of itself. The comic timing that she exhibits in the scene where she kind of like is is talking to the general, and then it's like she's like, "Oh, we'll show them all," and then she turns around and goes, yeah. it's, "It's something like, oh, we'll show, I'll show you as well." And he's like, oh, what, "What did you say?" And then she has to talk away out of it, and then immediately turns around and does the same thing again. I think she's absolutely magnificent in that scene. And kind of, I, I kind of think as absurd as it is, the the scene that Alan Cumming and Parker Posey share right at the end where they kind of reveal their true forms is... Um, yeah. Is, is, is Lisa and White-Ass Wally. Was that, a, was that a shock for you, Seb? I'm curious about your first <laughs> viewing experience. Oddly charming, I thought. Of the of, of Lisping Lisa and White-Ass Wally at the end that they're hiding this. <laughs> it's a... Yeah, it's a it's it's a bizarre direction. For sure. to suddenly, yeah, and I think that um, while I I think it's it's quite a nice it's quite a nice little resolution for the characters of the oh we were the two outsiders at school thing. I don't think you'd do the uh, the albino. Yeah, joke. probably not, no, or the lisping joke you? even. Uh, I I yeah. think I I think what I like about it is again it it doesn't feel mean spirited, so it doesn't feel like the gag is. Oh, the weird outsiders obviously grew up to be evil. It's like mm. it's like oh look, they're victims of the machine as well. Yeah. They're, they're victims of the corporate conformity, like consumerist culture that they had to turn into these perfect versions of, of, of what what they thought were perfect versions of themselves that they've been 
sold by the media and kind of turned into assholes in in the process of it. Yeah. My favorite Parker Posey scene is when she throws a party that's ostensibly for the Pussycats, but is mostly just like a tribute to herself to the point where the ice sculpture just spells out Fiona. And she's wearing this like incredible dress and she has these weird cutout pieces of fabric that are just like taped to her skin and are so bizarre. She does this like grand entrance down the staircase and then she just... And this, I think, is what is what really helps the, like, Lisping Lisa reveal at the end. But the way she acts at that party, she's like, let's just hang out, girls. And they go to their bedroom and she's got all her snacks. And you realize, like, she is just an incredibly insecure. It's like the idea that we never lose our high school insecurities, right? Like, she and Alan Cumming are both just, like, still totally hooked on this, this, like, need to prove themselves that they developed in high school. And her weird thing of, like, okay, I want to be friends with these girls because I'm a cool girl now. And the part where she, like, takes one Pringle and puts it on a plate and then she's just like, oh, I'm such a pig and and doesn't eat it. Like, the whole absurdity of that scene, I think, really gets... It's very funny and it, like, gets to something true about these, like, weird insecurities people have that they hold on to for so long in life. I found myself, when watching that scene, trying to imagine what the previous version of that with Dijon would have been. And, mm. and, and, and again, how she would have kind of, try, like, probably done some kind of cute, innocent flirting with the yeah, boys. Totally. And, tried to, and being like, oh, and I, I'm totally into video games. And like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, yeah, I, I think that would have been a, a fun scene to see. Yeah. What, what did we think of the gag where Dijon come back, but they're all in cast, so you can't see them, including the monkey? Um, yeah. And which... I love that Seth Green's character is still wearing the boa and the top hat that are like his signature <laughs> was, is, he, is he doing his move? I, I bet I bet he's doing his move. I, I, I he might be, yeah. I can't remember how they're styled. And there yeah. the gag is that they... <laughs> I love the throwaway line where they're like, oh, we managed to land the plane fine, which is just hilarious in and of itself to think about DuJour landing the plane and then they got Metallica beaten up at a Metallica fans. concert. Like That's just like joke upon joke that I is great. Mm. Yeah, again, it's that I think they, they, there's a few moments like that. It's like with the sneaker one that I mentioned earlier, where they ladle on more jokes than they need to, and it's better for it. It's like there's there's plenty of instances where one joke would do, but it's funnier if you mm-hmm. chuck a couple more in, and that's that's always the sign of something where the the determination is to be to be doing jokes at the at the right time. So that we to to avoid us just kind of spending too long because I'm, I'm I am mindful of time yeah. and and we could just go through all of your other favourite <laughs> bits. Um, let's yeah let let's look at the question which which that I wanted to pose. Which aside from the fact that I spent a long time wondering where I recognised him from and and wondering if he was James Spade as look. I know where you recognised um, him from, Seb. You you know where I recognised him from because I did get it eventually, which is that he's in... Do you, do you know this, Caroline? He's in later series Mad Men. Um, he's the horse riding guy when, when Betty's doing horse riding. So that, so that I was glad when I finally got that itch off my brain. But aside from that, would this film lose anything if you completely took the character of Alan out of it, just completely lopped every single scene with him in out of the film? I, well, so d- two questions. Would it lose anything for us now? And would it have lost anything for the teenage girl audience <laughs> at the time? I'm not even sure it would have lost anything for the teenage girl audience at the time. I think it's telling it? that like, I feel like I remembered virtually every moment of this film. And when Alan N came on screen, I both a only vaguely remembered the character and had misremembered him looking entirely differently. So clearly he did not make a strong impression on me. I don't hate the idea of there being a little love story in here, but I think it's so, 
it's not even badly done. It's just like nothing. I don't think it takes away per se, but it certainly doesn't add anything. Is he worse than Hugo in Elite Battle oh, Angel though? No, no because Hugo's he's not way he's, worse. He's not as he's not as <laughs> he's prominent not actively as, annoying. as Hugo. He's just he's just a complete void of a character and yeah. a performance. And when when Josie's like when Al, when Alan Cummings like, Oh Josie, no, no, his, his show's been cancelled tonight, you're like yeah, no, good. Don't go to that goal. <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's funny that he's constantly called Alan M. Because I usually think of that as a convention when there's multiple people with the same name and you have to clarify. But I like that there's no other Alans that in this fictional world they is just that, call him is that Alan just, M. Is that just a, an Archie thing? I'm assuming. It uh, yeah, I have I mean, that's his, it's his name in the comics. His name is Alan M. Maybury. And he, that is the character that he is in the comics. But I don't know if he's called that in the comics. Because of something else, because I know nothing about. By the way, the, there is no comics discussion to be had on this episode because I know you know you you got your little bit of Wikipedia at the start, and I know nothing else about Josie and the Pussycat or indeed any other Archie comics. Um, the only other thing that I would say about it with Alan is that I think what we would lose is one of Missy Pyle's best moments, which is the cutaway to her being his audience when <laughs> he's I'm playing his gig. Yeah, I. That was funny, and I think that's all. That almost makes it worth having him in. I it. think a quick fix for Alan M is that he should have also been secretly in love with Josie from the beginning, because how it comes across now is like she's secretly in love with him, and he kind of just sees her as a friend. But then once she gets like pretty unsuccessful, he falls in love with her, and I'm like, well, that's kind of a lame message. It should have been, oh, another girl power movie, Princess Diaries from this era. Like in Princess Diaries, the guy she ends up with is the guy who liked her before she got her like makeover and i think if it had been like Mm. she and alan m both secretly had a crush that they couldn't admit as opposed to they go for the gag of like she thinks he's going to confess his love and he's asking her opinion about a guy that smells bad at work but i think if it had been like a little more earnest with they're both secretly in love and then we get the reveal at the end it could have worked better as is it's not bad but it doesn't really add much they don't have chemistry the fact that alan m is a musician as well i kind of feel like is it doesn't really, there's no point that is landed there. And yeah. I don't know whether we're supposed to feel like at any point, like, oh, like he is the true artist that she needs to get back to being. I don't know. It's not pointed enough that I walk away thinking that. I just think, yeah, I think this is the element when Seb says, you know, it ends up play, when it does the kind of the more earnest stuff. It's yeah. the Alan M stuff that's that's awful. Because I actually think the stuff with Josie and, and Val and Melody kind of, having the the break at the end is it's it's tied up in the satire it's tied up in she's been fed the lines she has one moment where she's shitty to them and it's completely because of the music she's been listening to and it gives rachel lee cook a fun scene where she gets to play bitchy which she is so good at i find oh, that really scene chilling like she is so mean in there and i think rachel lee cook who like we talked about earlier is generally just cast as like likable endearing presence but that scene where she's evil like puppies turn into dogs and they grow old and they die like it is <laughs> cutting i i'm like wow rachel really like she cut to the bone there because her friends don't really have any like irredeemable character flaws the stuff that she says to them is it, it's not so devastating that yeah. you're like they can't get back from this or that it feels that you know that she's she's really really stepped too far and there's there's no point of return or she's kind of illuminated something to them that they now have to reckon with. It's just Josie was pretty shitty and we'll reconcile, yeah, she was being we'll reconcile that. So. Yeah, and she was being brainwashed, so it's fine. <laughs> but yeah, the, but the Alan M stuff is just 
turgid in comparison. There's no, yeah. there's, there's, that is, it's the one element of the movie that I cannot say anything positive for. Yeah. Other, other than, yes, I, I had also forgotten about Alan M until I started watching the movie yeah. again and went, oh, yeah. <laughs> He's here as well. Do you, I'm curious, do you guys have a favorite song from the... I know this is newer music to you, Seb, but do you have a one that stands out above the others, either of you? I, I would need to go back. I actually want to go back, having looked at who who wrote them, and be like, I, I want to now pay attention to them a bit more and see, for example, if I Wish You Well, which is mm-hmm. solely written by Anna Waronka, if that sounds like a That Dog song or not. But uh, not nothing that specifically jumped out to me. Uh, three Small Words is just such a banger. I think that's my favorite too. Although I also do like, I think Spin Around, which is the one they play at the concert, is like, is probably the most earnest of the songs in a way, or like the least, I don't know. It's like it comes at a moment in the movie where we're supposed to really be all in on the earnestness. But I do like that and pretend to be nice is their single that climbs the charts, which I think is also good. Yes, that is But I do think Three Small Words is great. And I love their cover of the Josie and the Pussycats theme song that they play at the end, like kind of a more rock and roll version they play at the end i think it's good too yeah that maybe that's their hunger city moment yeah <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm gonna be listening to the soundtrack all week i was gonna say everyone should just buy the soundtrack because it is great and many many hours of my childhood were spent just like in the car listening to this or in the <laughs> living room listening to this like great music definitely cosign <laughs> I'm, I've no doubt that um, I will attempt to find some way to get some snippets onto the episode because I always yes. like to do that when there's relevant music. So, do you have anything else to to add? Have we we covered your your love for this pretty comprehensively. I guess we should just give a quick shout out. So, the two people that um, co-directed and co-wrote this, Harry Elfont and Deborah Kaplan. So, they had done the year before, a couple of years before, they'd done Can't Hardly Wait, which was their first film that they had both written and directed. They wrote and directed Rosie and the Pussycats. And since then, they've like written a couple of their scripts, but they haven't directed anything since this. And I do think that they were pretty scarred by like the reception the film received. And mm. and in a way, like even though now this movie has been such embraced as a cult classic, like it kind of came too late for that to have a huge benefit for their career, which I think is unfortunate because I, I would mm. have loved and still would love if they want to go on to make more things like to see what they could have gone on to do so yeah i hope if that i hope that we reach a like a saturation point of people loving josie and the pussycats to the mm-hmm. point where they get to write and direct more films because i would love to see more from them well deborah kaplan did like my tweet about yes. um david tennant and elizabeth cool. banks in a remake and she she wasn't term searching someone tagged her into cool. it and then she, she liked very it. into that I think it is also worth noting that this film is shot by Matthew Libertique, who yeah. is the uh, who's Darren Aronofsky's regular cinematographer. So he did Pie and Requiem for a Dream before he did Josie and the Pussycats. He shot um, Phone Booth. Um, he shot um, Iron Man, Iron Man Two, uh, Ruby Sparks, uh, <laughs> straight straight <laughs> out of Compton, Mother, Venom, A Star Is Born, and Birds of Prey. So you know he's got he's got lots of pedigree in mm-hmm. in in the cinematic universe realm. Um, yeah. and, and and also is a great cinematographer, and I think it it probably you know it probably goes to say that you know everything this movie is doing is intentional, and this po- I, I, it's got that it's got that kind of bubblegum aesthetic, but it doesn't mm-hmm. look it doesn't look cheap. Other than the fact that, as I say, they spend a lot of the time in that one white room. Yeah. Um, <laughs> other other than that, like I you know the movie isn't is intentional um, at just about every step, and. Um, 
you know, I, I yeah, I think it I think it deserves the critical reappraisal that it has yeah. had. And it just has so much personality in a way that I think a lot of times mainstream studio comedies, they can just feel a little bit anonymous. And this movie, like, love it or hate it. And I think there's certainly, you know, arguments for people not liking this film are, are more than valid. But I think that this film is just like has so much personality. And that makes it a delight to rewatch. I have one more question for you, Caroline, which is, do you know the Doctor Who connection to this film? Other than the fact that the room sort of looked like a TARDIS, which I hadn't thought about until you posted it on Twitter, I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't have thought about another. The bit at the start with Dujour when there's mm-hmm. the crowds at the, the airport and then there's one bit where they're interviewing like a guy, yeah. like I'm not even sure how old yeah. he is, but like a kind of like he's like a teenage boy. Like I love them as brothers. That is just in chat with oh, he? Oh, yes. he's the superhero in Doctor Who. He's the superhero in the Which is like a great performance in that episode. I really like that episode. <laughs> well there you go. So that is the I still know him as Eddie from Lost. He was in a Lock flashback mm. episode, uh, and he was what sh- Shameless <laughs> as well. I think is his is his big thing. Okay. Yeah, and oh, is he also is he also the kid in War of the Worlds? I think he's Tom Cruise's son in War of the Worlds. I don't know. I'm not like it. Oh yeah, he is. He yeah. is in the 2005 War of the Worlds. He's the kid in that. Yeah. He is the awful kid in War of the Worlds. Yeah. But let's let's not hold that against him. Um, and I would I would just like to put out an appeal uh, now. I I don't know if this is the same in all territories, but as Seb mentioned. It's pretty hard to watch Josie and the Pussycats in the UK. It's only available to pay for paid streaming to rent or buy through iTunes in the UK. None of the other platforms have it, mm. which meant uh, iTunes is one of the few things that I can't watch through my TV. So I think this is the first film that I watched on my laptop this year because I tend to like to watch everything if I can on my TV. A, it would be great if we could get that out m- more widely. And also... Can we have a Blu-ray, please? Because this is only available on DVD. Get me Josie and the Pussycats on Blu-ray because I want to see this in 1080p at the very yeah. least. If we can upscale it to 4K, where's that? Someone dig out the print. Let's get it scanned in. Let's get it upscaled to 4K and let's get it released as a priority. Hashtag release the Josie cut. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's true in in the US, but in the UK, the DVD is not an in-print DVD mm. because if you go to Amazon you can only get it from third-party sellers, and it's the 2001 DVD. So it's not even a currently in-print DVD, which is... I wonder if there's a rights thing. Um, I don't know if it's if there's anything to do... I wouldn't have thought there'd be anything to do with, like, from an Archie perspective, mm-hmm. you know, because they've got their newer stuff, they wouldn't want the older stuff putting out. I don't think they would have the rights to stop a release. This is... It's universal, I think. But, yeah, it's just a weird one. I think it's just forgotten. I think this is a separate point, and one that I have kind of been facing... I've been watching all of Brian De Palma's movies during lockdown, and there's a number of them that were either out of print on DVD or only available, you know, on like limited streaming options. I think we, I, you know, I think we're inter- we're entering an interesting period in film culture where movies are being edited uh, for services, yeah. um, sometimes in very obvious ways, like we saw with Splash, sometimes in less obvious ways. A joke has been edited out of the end of Toy Story 2 um, on Disney+. And that is the version that I think will exist going forward. Mm-hmm. And, and we're not talking about that widely because it, it doesn't seem as bad or as egregious as, as some of the other stuff. But movies are disappearing from yeah. from wide distribution and are going out of print. And I think especially with some of the challenges that are going to be presented by COVID and the decline in physical media we might catch up in terms of these movies all turning up on digital and all being like readily available on digital. But 
you know, a filmmaker as well known as Brian De Palma, I had to import one of his movies on DVD from Germany, one on DVD from the US, and one that was, uh, uh, sorry, two or three that were out of print and no longer available on Amazon, which I had to get through eBay. And that's interesting, right, for a, for a filmmaker yeah. as, as, you know, like a canonical film like, filmmaker like Brian De Palma. And that's just the one guy that I've watched. That's not a that's not something that's limited to him. I think that's the yeah. case with with lots of can- canonical filmmakers, and it just makes you wonder: Are there movies that have slipped through the cracks that haven't had the critical appraisal of Josie and the Pussycats, or don't have that kind of at least you know little bit of IP attached to them that we're just mm-hmm. losing? Some of these movies are available to watch illegally on YouTube through str- through stuff that have been uploaded, but you know that <laughs> that's not going to help support the industry, and that's not going to help you know kind of like indie distributors yeah. uh to be encouraged to release a film like Josie and the Pussycats and you know and, and and more obscure stuff as well so yeah it just uh it makes you think doesn't yeah. it yeah i will say i do think it's slightly more easily <laughs> available in the US and actually as of the time of this recording it's streaming on HBO Go so if you are an american listener or a listener with connection to a VPN that connects you to america <laughs> it is streaming on HBO Go for your viewing pleasure well, there you go, and and there is definitely a resounding endorsement from from this podcast what a to do so, even if not from Roger <laughs> Ebert. <laughs> well, thank you guys for for joining for that one. I'm glad you got the opportunity to spend uh, nearly a couple of hours talking about. <laughs> and we could, I honestly could have done many hours more, but I think at some point we have to cut me off from just <laughs> quoting every line from this film. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And Joe, we will, uh, well, we, there may well be something that we'll get you back on for before the end of this year, but if not, I'm sure we'll certainly Undoubtedly, see just tell me, uh, tell me what you, tell me what you want me back for. I'm, I mean, I'm going to, oh, oh, please get oh, me back boy. with New Mutants in, in 2023 or whenever I was gonna that, say, that yeah. does land. Yeah. When we're all 70 years old and it finally comes out. If you are listening, enjoyed this episode, you can find more and subscribe on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Player FM, Overcast, Google, Stitcher. This is like that bit at the start when I listed all the brands uh, or your podcast app of choice. By the way, I was looking back on it and in that list at the start, Ford was in there twice. I blame the one that I copy pasted, but... It's annoying. You can also find everything we do at cinematicuniverse.com. You can buy our merchandise at cinematicu.redbubble.com. Should have put some subliminal messages throughout the podcast for people to do that. And if you want to, well, (laughs) but still might, still might well do. Uh, and if you want to get in touch the best way is on twitter at cine underscore verse or with an email to podcast at cinematicuniverse.com if you want to support the show even further you can back us on patreon that will get you ad free access to the episodes as well as bonus material including james's x-men 92 episode reviews uh, which he may well have started up again by now he said he was going to um our live stream movie watch alongs i'm i'm in the process of, of seeing whether i can persuade people to maybe do a sort of approaching the end of lockdown maybe look at doing another one um and we'll have some kind of bonus relating to this even though james hasn't watched this film with us uh we'll do something on that and more stuff uh thanks to hayden stewart ashley day and glenn newman for backing us since the last episode and our regular top backer brendan roberts thanks for listening and we'll see you next time Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.